In today's Boston Marathon, the men's winner from last year is the first runner across the line this year. An American wheelchair athlete Susanna Scaroni pulls off a win even though she needed a pit stop to tighten a wheel. Today is Monday, April 17th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Marathon results coming up. Details are trickling in following Saturday's mass shooting in Dadeville, Alabama. Four people were killed, 28 others injured at a Sweet 16 birthday party. How does disappearing ice in Antarctica threaten the U.S.? We look to Galveston, Texas and West Antarctica to find out. Also ahead, advice on whether now is a good time to invest in a new electric vehicle. These stories and Wall Street numbers are coming up. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Flags are lowered to half-staff outside a high school that's about to let out for the day in Dadeville, Alabama. Counselors have been on call at Dadeville High and other schools to help students and faculty process the loss their small community suffered in Saturday's mass shooting. Four young people, ranging in age from 17 to 23, were killed. 28 people were injured. Police have yet to disclose details about suspects or a possible motive. In Kansas City, Missouri, investigators are trying to determine if last week's shooting of a black teen who went to pick up his younger siblings at the wrong residence was racially motivated. Police have not yet charged the homeowner, who civil rights attorney Ben Crum says appears to be white. The elderly man was released from police custody, sparking protests from members of the community on behalf of the black teen. The U.S. Attorney's Office for the Eastern District of New York says 40 Chinese police officers and others used thousands of fake social media accounts to try to harass and intimidate Chinese dissidents abroad. Separately, a court said two others were accused of operating an illegal Chinese police station in lower Manhattan. Here's NPR's John Ruich. The U.S. Attorney's Office in Brooklyn says Chinese police used online personas to threaten dissidents and disseminate official propaganda and narratives to counter pro-democracy speech. Authorities say the defendants also attempted to recruit Americans to act as unwitting agents of the Chinese government by disseminating propaganda. Separately, a federal court in Brooklyn unsealed a complaint against two defendants linked to opening and operating an illegal Chinese police station in New York. Assistant Attorney General Matthew Olson says this goes far beyond the bounds of acceptable nation-state conduct and reveals the Chinese government's, quote, flagrant violation of our nation's sovereignty. John Ruich, NPR News. Addressing Wall Street, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy outlined a debt limit proposal that would lower spending levels and attach several Republican policy proposals. NPR's Deirdre Walsh reports Democrats insist Congress should agree on a clean extension of the debt ceiling. Speaker McCarthy warned in a speech at the New York Stock Exchange Monday that the current national debt, $31 trillion, was unsustainable. Without exaggeration, American debt is a ticking time bomb that will detonate unless we take serious, responsible action. McCarthy outlined legislation that would cap spending at 2022 levels, add work requirements for adults without dependents who receive food stamps, and approve measures to speed construction of energy projects. Democrats say the plan threatens a default and would impose cuts on hardworking Americans. The Treasury Department says the U.S. will run out of money to pay its bills sometime this summer. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News. The Dow closes up more than 100 points at 33,987. This is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Runners are still crossing the Boston Marathon finish line in Copley Square. Despite some rain today, huge crowds lined the course, cheering on runners who also had to deal with some strong winds. WBR's Alex Ashlock has more. Defending champion Evans Shabet of Kenya has won the Boston Marathon for the second straight year. He surged to the front at Heartbreak Hill to spoil the much-anticipated debut of world record holder Elliot Kipchoge who finished sixth. Helen O'Beary won the women's race in a sprint down Boylston Street to complete the Kenyan sweep. The top Americans in the men's and women's pro races were Scott Fobble, who finished seventh, and Emma Bates, who came in fifth. Marcel Hoog of Switzerland won the men's wheelchair race in course record time, his sixth victory here, and American Susanna Scaroni won her first Boston title, despite having to stop early in the race to tighten her wheel. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Alex Ashlock at the Marathon Finish Line. The disposition of the Boston Marathon crowd was sunny today despite the clouds. Liz McKellen came out to support her sister who was running. McClellan lives in New Hampshire but says she was born and raised here in Boston. The last time I came to Boston was during the pandemic and it was a ghost town and it was a little heartbreaking. Um, Just to walk through the streets last night today, it's a feeling like Nowhere else. Happy people, nobody's been rude, just a beautiful and international energy, which I love. In other news we're following today, gas prices continue to rise in Massachusetts. The average price of regular gas this week in the state is $3.39 a gallon. That's up $0.05 from last week, up $0.11 from a month ago. The current Massachusetts average is $0.28 below the national average. 52 degrees now in the Boston area. Raw weather continues into the night tonight, but eventually rain clouds should move out. We should wake up to clear skies tomorrow. Overnight lows about 51. Tomorrow should not get a lot warmer. A high of 57 degrees. Should be sunny, though. Wednesday, sunny, breezy, holding to the mid-50s. Again, 52 degrees in Boston at 406. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by EBSCO, committed to making it easy for people to discover and access library resources anytime from anywhere with bibliograph and linked data technology. Learn more at ebsco.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Scott Detrow in Washington. Today marks the third day of intense fighting in Sudan. In the capital, Khartoum, and around the country, citizens are hiding in their homes to avoid airstrikes and machine gun fire. At the center of the conflict are Sudan's army and a powerful paramilitary group known as the Rapid Support Force, or RSF. To understand the fighting, you have to go back to 2021, when they worked together to orchestrate a coup. Now the generals leading these two armed factions, former allies, are at war over which should lead the country's defense as Sudan transitions back to a civilian-led government, and both sides are demanding surrender. Cameron Hudson is here to tell us more about the conflict. He is a senior associate at the Center for Strategic and International Studies Africa program and served as a special envoy to Sudan during the Obama administration. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thanks for having me. So let's start with the two groups at the center of this conflict. We have the Army and the RSF. Tell us about the army first. Who is in charge and what is their claim on leadership? Well, their claim on leadership is really that they've led the country for the better part of the last 50 years. It's a military general named Abdel Fattah al-Burhan who took over the country essentially when uh, the longtime dictator Omar al-Bashir was removed from power back in 2019. 
he has been essentially running the country for a period of that time. There was a civilian transition that he was working with. But as you said, in 2021, there was a coup that removed the civilian prime minister. And for the better part of the last uh, 16 months, they've been negotiating uh, the conditions under which a new civilian prime minister could return to office. And what do we need to know about the RSF to understand their motivations? Well, the RSF are a a militia group on a mercenary outfit. Um, They emerged from the remnants of the Janjaweed Arab militia, which people will remember terrorized uh, Darfuri civilians for a long time uh, during the conflict there. They were given title and uh, a kind of normalized role in the security services of the country by Omar al-Bashir, essentially as a counterweight to the Sudan Armed Forces. We've seen the RSF grow very powerful over the last decade because they've uh, been a mercenary army selling their services to uh, the Saudis in Yemen or in Libya and other places. They also can control large areas of gold mining operations in the north of the country. So they've become very rich. And with that wealth, they've been able to recruit an army of as many as 100,000 people, which now rivals the power and the strength of the Sudan Armed Forces. And who's in charge of the RSF? What do we need to know? The commander in charge of the RSF is a General uh, Hamdan Degallo, uh, otherwise known as Hemeti, his known de guerre. He is formerly a camel herder. He's reputed to have been uh, illiterate until very recently. I think uh, the military has tried to to paint him as a kind of rube, you know, from from the peripheral areas. Tried to disparage him as a fighter and as a leader, um, and really kind of keep the RSF at a distance, suggesting that they are not fit to govern the country. You know, Sudan has seen political violence before and military coups before. What's different here? Well, I think the the difference now and the most dangerous element is that this conflict is taking place in cities across the country. Uh, This fundamental tension in Sudan for decades has been this tension between the center, the capital, and the peripheral areas, where the capital has been ruled by kind of Arab elites and lesser tribes have been repressed all throughout the country. This is now uh, being looked upon as an opportunity for those repressed kind of rural areas to rise up and to bring the violence to the capital. The problem is, of course, that this is playing out in a city of 5 million people in Khartoum, where civilian casualties are, are at great risk and where civilian infrastructure can be easily destroyed, and frankly, where urban dwellers don't have the kind of coping mechanisms that rural dwellers do if water gets cut off or electricity gets cut off or they can't get to the market to to buy provisions. So it's a real problem for the civilians that are inhabiting and watching their city be destroyed. That's Cameron Hudson of the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Thanks so much. Thank you. And coming up in a few minutes, David's bridal is filing for bankruptcy again. We'll take a look at what's ahead for the wedding dress superstore. If the EPA gets its way, there will be a whole lot more electric cars on the dealership lot in the future. Under proposed emission standards unveiled last week, car makers would need around two-thirds of their sales to be electric vehicles by 2032. Keith Berry, an autos reporter for Consumer Reports, says that means cheaper EVs, too. 
because you can't get to those numbers selling vehicles that are you know around $60,000, which is where the average EV is right now. You need more mass market vehicles. Great news if you want to buy an electric vehicle in a decade. Right now, there are tax incentives for buyers, but only on certain vehicles. So I asked Keith Berry to list some reasons why someone looking to buy a car now should consider an EV, apart from, you know, trying to do the right thing for the environment. You have this incredible performance. You know, these cars are posting zero to 60 times that would have made a, you know, a muscle car make it onto the cover of Road and Track 15 <laughs> years ago. And, you know, they're family vehicles. You might save some money on fuel costs as well. Uh, that's, that's different depending upon the car and depending upon the region of the country. But in general, you, you'll probably save some money on fuel. So there are all these great things about the cars themselves, but you'd have to have some money in order to do so. Yeah. Uh, there are only a couple of inexpensive EVs on the market. Okay, well, besides purchase price, what would be other reasons to potentially wait before getting an electric vehicle? One reason to wait is because they're just going to be more EVs on the market. You know, GM is coming out with some affordable EVs. Another reason to wait might be if you don't have a place to charge an EV, either at home, if you have to get a charger installed, yeah. or if you're trying to drive somewhere on, you know, where there just isn't an adequate charging infrastructure. And that's something that there are also going to be massive investments in, you know, the more EVs that are guaranteed to hit the market. Well, that means that there are going to have to be more places for them to be plugged into charge while on a road trip. Well, what if you're out there and you're thinking to yourself, maybe I should buy a used EV? What are the trade-offs? The biggest trade-off is that there just aren't that many used EVs. EVs are only about a little more than 5% of the new car market now, and they were way less than that last year and the year before. The good news is that for the first time, buyers of used EVs, as long as they meet certain income thresholds, can get a tax credit of up to $4,000. But it, that's only if you buy a car from a dealership, and that's only if it's a, a one-owner vehicle, if it, has, if it hasn't already been resold. So you, the car can only get that tax credit once. Now, you mentioned tax credits. Of course, tax credits are going to be a factor in the decision for a lot of people. And the government is planning to make an announcement on which actual vehicle models qualify for specific tax credits this year. Can you explain more about that? What exactly is happening and how can people shopping for cars currently navigate through all of that? This was kind of a weird year for the EV tax credit because a lot of things changed and kept changing. Starting on April 18th, the $7,500 tax credit is going to be divided into two parts. So for the first half, at least 50% of a vehicle's battery components have to be produced or assembled in North America. For the second half, at least 40% of the critical minerals used in the battery must be extracted or processed in the U.S., or they have to come from a country that's uh, a U.S. free trade agreement partner, which is a list which is changing every day. Oh, or my God. they have to be made from materials that have been recycled in North America. And okay, so, so surely there is a list of exactly <laughs> yes. which models qualify, right? There is, and it's changing. But even when you look <laughs> at that, sometimes cars are made in different factories. So I know at least one automaker, General Motors, says that they're going to have a website that you can go to and you can plug in the vehicle identification number of the individual car you're looking at and see if it qualifies. So, uh, uh, you know, this is really easy for the consumer to figure this out. <laughs> Keith Berry is an autos reporter for Consumer Reports. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. David's Bridal, the company that has dressed American brides for more than 70 years, has filed for bankruptcy. 
The chain is assuring shoppers that stores are open, that all orders should stay on schedule, but the company is also planning to lay off thousands of workers. NPR's Alina Seljuk reports. In recent years, David's Bridal has claimed to be selling every third wedding dress in America, which almost makes its bankruptcy filing seem like a paradox, says Sucharita Kadali, retail analyst at Forrester. What's ironic is that last year and this year should be banner years for weddings. The pandemic lockdowns eventually unleashed a wedding boom. Behind the veil, David's Bridal has been hundreds of millions of dollars in debt. They've been struggling for years and had been in different forms of bankruptcy. David's Bridal grew from a single boutique in Florida in 1950, actually run by a guy named David, to a nationwide chain of some 300 stores. Find unforgettable dresses for every occasion, starting under $100. The stores are mazes of racks of gowns and fancy outfits in a lot of different sizes. From weddings to awards ceremonies to proms to parties to quinceaneras to graduations to girls' nights. First came something borrowed. In 2012, a private equity firm bought David's Bridal. The deal saddled it with debt. Then something new, a changing industry. Couples began marrying later, weddings got smaller, more casual, people bought more gowns online and secondhand. In 2018, David's Bridal went through bankruptcy, but it was rapid, a matter of weeks, just to restructure debt. Except then the pandemic hit. The chain spent a lot on rents for stores nobody visited, on dealing with factory shutdowns abroad. And now the cost of making payments on its loans has escalated, says Kadali. When you're in debt and interest rates go up, like that's that's probably the biggest issue. What David's Bridal wants is for someone to buy it, the whole company. Meanwhile, it's filed government notices that it plans to lay off 9,200 workers. That's a vast majority. The layoffs are planned over the course of four months, so David's Bridal says it intends to keep delivering bridal orders without disruption or delay, and stores, for now, remain open till debt do us part. Alina Seljuk, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9, excuse me, 90.9 WBUR. On Wall Street, an upswing today. The Dow rose three-tenths of a percent. S&P closed just over three-tenths of a percent higher. The Nasdaq rose just under that. It gained 0.28 percent. This is 90.9. It is 418. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by an unlikely story bookstore and cafe in Plainville, presenting National Book Award author M.T. Anderson and his new book, Elf Dog and Owlhead, what's described as a magical adventure about a dog and her boy in the forest. Friday, April 28th at 6.30 p.m. Registration at anunlikelystory.com. Check out Violation, a new podcast from WBUR in partnership with The Marshall Project. Violation explores America's opaque parole system through a decades-old murder case. You can hear Violation wherever you get your podcasts. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MIT's McDermott Award in the Arts, honoring Pamela Z. See her lecture at MIT April 20th. More at arts.mit.edu slash McDermott. Still reckoning with some showers along the Marathon route and throughout the area. Tonight, clouds should continue, but by morning we should have clear skies and sunshine. 
breezy and not too warm, only in the mid-50s. Wednesday should be sunny again, breezy again, with highs again in the mid-50s, a little bit warmer toward the end of the week. 52 degrees under gray skies in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from Progressive, Progressive commercial auto insurance protects the cars, trucks, and vans that work to keep small businesses moving forward, including protection while running errands and other tasks at ProgressiveCommercial.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Scott Detrow. We're about to share a sound that very few people have ever heard. It's from Antarctica, and it's a recording from underneath a melting glacier. That whistling sound is a seal. And what sounds like rumbling thunder, that's the most important part. That is the sound of the ice cracking apart one of the most elemental sounds of climate change. This melted glacier, again, in Antarctica, is threatening people who live 8,000 miles away in sunny Texas. Rebecca Hersher from NPR's Climate Desk explains this unexpected connection. We're far from Antarctica, on an island in the Gulf of Mexico. This is Galveston, Texas, gateway to one of the busiest ports in the country, home to a cruise terminal, a university, 50,000 residents and miles of sandy beaches. Like a lot of people here, Jerry Davila comes down to the water to relax. I love just staring at the water. It's a, it's a great stress reliever just to look at it. But families who have lived in Galveston for a long time also know that the water can be dangerous. It's the number one threat to this city's existence. So I'm June Collins Pullion, and we are here in Galveston um, at uh, our family home that's been here for about 120 years. 120 years because the house that used to be on this exact spot was destroyed, swept away by the ocean during a storm in the year 1900. We actually have firsthand accounts of what happened from oral histories. This is Pulliam's great aunt, Annie Smizer McCullough, who was in her early 20s when the storm hit. Oh, it was a awful thing you want me to tell you, but it's no tongue can tell it. This recording originally aired in an NPR radio documentary. The sound of wind and water was added by producers. The wind was so strong and those waves was coming, so, well, I don't guess you want to hear all of that. Yes, we do. Go ahead. The water was coming so fast. The wagon was getting so it was floating. McCullough barely survived. The family's home and most of the city were destroyed. At least 6,000 people died. It's still the most deadly weather disaster in recorded U.S. history. But the city survived. 
thanks in large part to a massive concrete wall that was built after the storm. A wall so tall that engineers said it would protect the city from the ocean forever. The wall is still here today. I drove out to look at it with Kelly Burks Copes from the Army Corps of Engineers. So this is 17 feet high. 17 feet high and 10 miles long. It runs basically the length of the city. It's covered in murals. There's a four-lane road along the top. We're on the seawall. So the seawall is where the bulk of the condos are. This is where people come and stay in hotels. They walk across Seawall Boulevard, which is the road we're driving on. They drop down off of the 17-foot seawall on stairs, not jumping, <laughs> and they go out to the beach. And on a calm day, it's difficult to imagine that water could ever come over the top of this wall. It really does look like it will protect the city forever. And maybe it would have, if not for climate change. But Galveston has already experienced two feet of sea level rise. That's some of the fastest sea level rise in the world. And that makes storm surge from hurricanes even more dangerous. We are in storm alert here at the Weather Channel as Hurricane Ike draws dangerously close to the upper Texas coast. Ike in 2008, Ike narrowly missed Galveston. If the storm had hit the city directly, scientists say it would have overwhelmed the seawall. It was a wake-up call. The wall is too small, says Kelly Burks Copes. 17 feet tall. With sea level rise, that's still not enough. Because sea level rise in Galveston is accelerating. The most sophisticated estimates predict that in the next century, sea levels here will rise at least two additional feet, and perhaps 10 feet or more. It's a huge range. Which brings us back to the melting glacier in Antarctica. Erin Pettit is the scientist who recorded the sound you heard at the beginning. When she made it, she was camped on top of one of the most dangerous glaciers in Antarctica. It's the size of Florida, and it's melting. I put hydrophones in the water underneath our camp. Underwater microphones are one of the many tools Pettit is using to figure out how quickly glaciers like this one are melting. She and her team are also measuring giant cracks in the ice. They're getting longer by, you know, sometimes a mile a year, but it's not just a continuous, slowly incrementing thing. It sits there for a while, and then in just a week later, it'll be a mile longer. Like everything seems okay, and then boom, a giant piece of ice falls into the ocean, unleashing more sea level rise. Pettit is trying to understand why that happens so she can predict the future, figure out how quickly this glacier will splinter and how quickly all that fresh water will be added to the ocean. And even though she works at the other end of the planet, her research has huge implications for Galveston because melting ice in West Antarctica disproportionately affects the Texas coast. Ben Hamlington studies sea level rise at NASA. He says the connection between Texas and Antarctica is kind of counterintuitive. Because you would think the areas closest to where that ice is being lost would feel it the most. And it's actually the further away you are, the bigger sea level rise you're actually going to feel. So being far away from Antarctica as it melts doesn't protect cities like Galveston. It actually does the opposite. Also, scientists think that all the extra fresh water pouring into the ocean near Antarctica could disrupt a major ocean current in the Atlantic, which would cause even faster sea level rise on the East Coast and in the Gulf of Mexico. Which is why people in Galveston and in other coastal U.S. cities really need to know how quickly Antarctica's ice will disappear, so they can protect themselves. 
That's what the Army Corps of Engineers is hoping to do in Galveston. The Corps has a plan to make the seawall taller, plus build new gates and dunes and other infrastructure to protect other parts of the city from rising seas. The plan would cost at least $34 billion, although that's likely an underestimate. This will be the largest ever civil works project undertaken by the Corps of Engineers in its 220-year history. Kelly Berkscope says the goal is to protect Galveston for another 100 years. And even though it's unclear how much sea levels will rise in the next century, they need to start building protections now, she says. Otherwise, the city is just a sitting duck. You can't be risk adverse. You can't be paralyzed by uncertainty. You have to actually start making decisions and buy down the risk. That means designing infrastructure that's adaptable. Unlike the seawall that was built after 1900, many of the upgraded walls and dunes can be made taller or wider if they need to be in the future. It's a nod to what we don't know about our changing planet and a vote for the survival of this city on an island. Rebecca Hersher, NPR News. NPR's Climate Desk is looking at the far-reaching effects of melting ice all this week. You can catch more of their stories right here or online at npr.org slash icemelt. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Red Sox are lagging behind the L.A. Angels at Fenway in the annual Patriots Day game. The Angels are leading 5-3 in the bottom of the ninth. The first night of playoffs for the Boston Bruins is tonight. The Bees will take on the Florida Panthers at the Garden. The puck drops at 7.30. And retired Bruins great Zdeno Chara finished his first Boston Marathon today. The six foot nine inch Chara finished his run in just over three and a half hours. Details on marathon winners coming up on WBUR. It's 4.30. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at certapro.com. That's Serta with a C. UMass Chan Medical School, proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe. And Boston Ballet School's Next Generation, a showcase of student talent and the best Boston arts education. Citizens Bank Opera House, May 19th, bostonballet.org. I'm Asma Khalid, and I love a good story. That's why I love NPR's politics beat. There's always plenty of drama and suspense. Your car has a story, too. It's been there for daily life and memorable events. So when it's time for a new car, let your old car do one more good deed. Donate it to this station, and we'll turn it into tomorrow's stories. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. A Delaware judge says he's still planning for the biggest media trial in decades after delaying the start until tomorrow. That case centers on whether Fox News defamed Dominion voting systems by spreading lies that the voting machines company rigged the 2020 presidential election to prevent Donald Trump's re-election. 
As NPR's David Falkenflik tells us, both sides are engaging in potential settlement talks. What the lawyers are doing is seeing if there's a deal to strike, uh, which would, you know, stave off this six-week trial uh, for a 10-figure sum of over a billion dollars, $1.6 billion, and it's giving them a little space. Fox says uh, Dominion has dropped its demands for how much it wants by $600 million. Dominion just countered uh, just a few minutes ago uh, by saying our you know, our $1.6 billion uh, figure that we're seeking in damages stands, uh, and, uh, you know, we're, we're going to present more evidence to that case ahead. NPR's David Falkenflick. The Justice Department is sending an experienced prosecutor to Europe to help international efforts to investigate Russian war crimes in Ukraine. Attorney General Mayor Garland made the announcement today at a meeting with Ukraine's top prosecutor. Here's NPR's Ryan Lucas. Garland says the Justice Department prosecutor will be sent to bolster international investigations into alleged Russian war crimes in Ukraine. This is part of the department's long-running effort, Garland says, to hold Russia responsible for its atrocities. And we are doing everything in our power to achieve the accountability necessary for true justice for Ukraine. Garland says American prosecutors are working closely with Ukrainian counterparts to investigate specific crimes reportedly committed by Russian forces, while Ukrainian prosecutors are aiding U.S. investigations into potential war crimes in which Americans have been harmed or killed. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Kenyan runners took the top spots in the men's and women's races at the Boston Marathon today. Well, a complete list of the marathon winners with WBUR's Alex Ashlock in about two minutes. The physical and psychological trauma caused by the 2013 marathon bombings looms large for many here in Boston. But for some in today's marathon crowd, it was also a day of healing. Liz McClellan was born and raised in Boston. She says tonight will be for celebrating. Plenty of time to get home, but it's just, you know, Boston's alive and it's just a very healing spirit, especially this being the 10th anniversary. It's just really a healing energy that the runners share with us and we share with them. So nobody's running alone and nobody's watching alone. McClellan's sister completed her first in-person marathon today. The Jewish Holocaust Day of Remembrance, Yom HaShoah, begins this evening. The Jewish Community Relations Council commemorated the day yesterday with an event at Fanta Hall. The council's chief operating officer, Erica Daniel Stratter, says the events like these are especially important amid a rise in anti-Semitism. I don't think we have any illusions about eradicating anti-Semitism and hate in this moment. It's about education, it's about allyship, and it's about trying to um, to sit at the table and engage people in nuanced conversations and, and listen. The Anti-Defamation League reported nearly 3,700 anti-Semitic incidents nationwide last year, the highest number on record. And the Bruins say injuries and illness could keep two of their key players off the ice tonight for the playoffs. The Bees are set to face the Florida Panthers in Game 1 of their first-round playoff matchup. Head coach Jim Montgomery says Captain Patrice Bergeron and goalie Linus Ulmark are game-time decisions. The Bruins' other goaltender, Jeremy Swayman, missed practice on Sunday but did take part in the optional skate earlier today. The team has recalled a goalie from their minor league team in Providence on an emergency basis. It's 434. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MIT Museum, with captivating exhibitions and dynamic programming that turn MIT inside out. Curious what the buzz is about? Plan your visit today. And Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. 
Red Sox just picked up a run. They are still behind the L.A. Angels at Fenway Park, though. Angels are leading now 5-4 in the ninth inning. In the forecast, wet and gray leading to overcast skies tonight, falling to about 50 degrees. Damp weather should disappear by tomorrow with sunshine tomorrow. Windy, not real warm, though. Highs only in the mid-50s. 52 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. The 127th Boston Marathon today has featured a back-to-back championship and a record-breaking finish. The winner of the men's division for a second year in a row was Evans Chibet of Kenya. His fellow countryman, Eliud Kipchoge, has been favored to win, had been favored to win. He holds the world's record for marathons. This was his first in Boston, but he ended up coming in sixth today. WBR Marathon correspondent Alex Ashlock was on the press truck watching the lead women in the race. He joins us from Copley Square, where he's been hearing from some of the athletes. Never a dull marathon, is it, Alex? No. You remember that proposal to allow betting on the Boston Marathon that uh, didn't get approved? There's probably a lot of people out there uh, who are glad that that didn't go through because they would have lost money today betting on uh, Kipchoge. Okay, so (laughs) let's talk about him in just a bit. But first, uh, the women's race, since you had a front row seat for that one. This was really exciting. Uh, Tell us about Helen Obiri of Kenya. This was her first ever Boston Marathon, her second marathon ever, and she won. Yeah, it was really a big victory for Obiri, and the crowd was loving it as she sprinted down Boylston Street. As you said, she's not an experienced marathoner. She's been an Olympic medalist on the track, but today she stayed in the lead pack as it shrunk down to about four or five, and when the time came, she used the speed she has displayed in the past on the track, and she burst down Boylston Street and won by 12 seconds. And Lisa, with about six miles to go in this race, Obiri was there, but it looked like American Emma Bates might win this race or at least finish in the top three. Here's what she said. She said that she didn't have a plan to go with the lead runners in the race today, but it just so happened she found herself in the lead at about mile 20. She looked over to the side and saw her coach and said, well, I'm in the front, so I might as well, uh, you know, keep going. And he, he was saying the same thing, so just go for it. And her instincts kicked in. And, That's incredible. Uh, they left her uh, behind at about 25 miles of the lead pack, but she hung in and got a fifth-place finish. She was the top American woman in the field today. Wow, and she is a name I'm assuming you're going to be watching for next year. Definitely. So tell us about um, um, uh, the men's race now. Evans yeah. Chibet, who won for a second year in a row. His fellow Kenyan, the world record holder, Elliot Kichogi, was heavily favored but fell behind. I don't know if that was at Heartbreak Hill or what, but he never caught up. Yeah, it was it was in the hills of Newton, uh, a little bit before Heartbreak Hill, uh, and he did fall behind, and he never caught up. He did move up a place. I think he fell back to seventh, but he ended up sixth. Chibet is the first man to repeat as a Boston champion since 2008. He's won here two times in a row now, as we said, so maybe we should start calling him the world's greatest marathoner. He called this win today the biggest of his career and simply said he probably will come back and try for a Boston uh, victory, a third Boston victory. We did get a statement from Elliot Kipchoge, and I'll read a bit from it here. He said, today was a tough day for me. I pushed myself as hard as I could, but sometimes we must accept that today was not the day to push the barrier 
to a greater height. There were reports that he was limping after he finished and also went into the medical tent. So um, that's what we know about Kipchoge this afternoon. I wonder to what extent the race conditions affected either his run or the run of the other marathoners. Temperatures seemed ideal for most runners, but uh, there was that sporadic rain, sometimes a heavier rain. How did that seem to affect the athletes? Yeah, you know, one of the only other marathons that uh, Kipchoge didn't win was London in 2020, and the weather was cold uh, and windy, cold, rainy, like a little bit like it was today. There were some athletes who did say it was cold. Emma Bates was one of them. She said she was just surprised how cold it was. The wind was in the runner's face faces at times. And uh, Evans Chibet and his trainer training partner, Benson Kiproto, uh, went into this race, I think, planning to run in a particular way to try to work on Kipchoge. And uh, they ran together, and at times they hung back behind the other runners to let them break the wind. And uh, they went into the race, as I said, planning to work together, and they did. And Kiproto, who won here in 2021, finished in third today. So their their plan worked out, the training partner first, and his uh, fellow partner, fellow brother, fellow uh, runner finished third. So we don't have too much more time here, but uh, in the men's wheelchair race, uh, Marcel Hoog of Switzerland, known as the Silver Bullet, shattered the record for this course, which he himself set years ago for the women's wheelchair division. Susanna Scaroni of Washington State won her first Boston title. She was way ahead of the pack, even though she had to stop and fix a wheel. Yeah, that's right. This was about six miles into the race, and she noticed that her wheel was loose, and so she stopped and fixed it. She stopped and fixed it and then regained her time. So She did. Yeah. Um, let's see, are we going to be hearing from her? No, I guess we'll hear from her a little bit later. Um, <laughs> you say, I know, Alex, that she was disappointed when she felt the wheel coming right. loose and, and thought it's best to make a pit stop. Yeah, I might as well stop and fix it because if I don't stop and fix it, I'll be going slower, so I'll lose more time. So she did a quick calculus in her, in her head and said, I'm going to stop and fix this thing. And she had such a huge lead. I think she won by more than 10 minutes, so it didn't affect her victory in the marathon today. And amazing to see how she carries the tools right with her, got it done in like less than 30 <laughs> seconds. That's right, that's right. WBR Marathon correspondent Alex Ashlock, thank you for all of your reporting today, starting early this morning at the starting line in Hopkinton. Thanks so much, Alex. You're welcome, Lisa. Funding for WBUR Boston Marathon coverage comes from Marathon Sports. Remembering all those affected by the bombings at the 2013 Boston Marathon. Marathonsports.com Support for NPR comes from this station and from Peacock with the new original series Mrs. Davis about the world's most powerful artificial intelligence and the nun devoted to destroying her. From Tara Hernandez and Damon Lindelof streams April 20th on Peacock. And from Indeed, Committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates, businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct virtual interviews all in one place. Indeed.com NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. There are still more questions than answers today after a mass shooting over the weekend at a birthday party in the small Alabama town of Dadeville, population just over 3,000. Four people were killed and at least 28 were injured. Police say their investigation is ongoing. And since the shooting Saturday night, authorities have released little information about what happened and why. NPR's Debbie Elliott joins us now from Dadeville. Hi, Debbie. Hi there. So what can you tell us at this point about 
what exactly happened on Saturday? Well, we really don't have any more details today than we had, you know, yesterday. Uh, We know that the shooting happened right off the town square. It's one of those little historic town squares in a dance studio that had been rented out for a Sweet 16 birthday party. Today, there does appear to be a cleaning and remediation crew at that building, and people have um, laid out a couple of bouquets of flowers on the sidewalk out front. The only new information today is coming from the Tallapoosa County coroner who identified the four young people killed. They were 23 year-old Corbin Holston of Dadeville. Local residents tell me he is a former football player at Dadeville High School. 18-year-old Phil Stavius Dowdle of Camp Hill, a senior at Dadeville High School. Everyone here calls him Phil. He was a well-loved football player who was about to graduate and then go on and play in college. Uh, It was his sister's sweet 16 birthday party Hmm. where this happened. Um, The other two, 19-year-old Marciah Amanda Emmanuel Collins of Opelika, a nearby town. Local press reports say he was headed to LSU next year and was a musician. And then 17-year-old Sean Kivia Nicole Smith, also a senior at Dadeville High. People here call her Kiki and say she was always smiling and worked as a manager for a couple of sport teams at the school. Well, I know, Debbie, that you've been talking to people there who are still processing. What are they saying to you? You know, it's just a lot of sadness and shock that this happened here. Um, Pastor Richard Jacobs with New Poplar Springs Missionary Baptist Church told me some members of his congregation were at that party, and he says people are just really struggling to understand. Right now, each and every uh, person in this community is facing a tragedy. Uh, Such a small-knit community like we are and uh, as close as we are, This impact has affected everybody from the schools to um, local businesses. These are are individuals and kids that you see every day, that you know their parents, you know their siblings, and we're still just trying to process uh, the situation. Elsa, two main themes from people here that I've been Mm -hmm. talking with today. Number one, if you think your little town is immune from mass shootings, think again. No one is immune. And secondly, why? No one seems to have an answer as to what caused a celebration to turn deadly. So no details so far about a possible motive? No, I did speak briefly with the Dadeville Police Chief Jonathan Floyd, and he asked for patience. We're working diligently. We're following up on every lead that we've got. Um, We're going to be very methodical. We're not going to make any mistakes. Uh, Our ultimate goal here is successful prosecution. So Floyd declined to comment on whether authorities have a suspect in custody. Um, He did say he's asking witnesses to come forward with anything they might have, including photos or videos from the party. It sounds very much like this is an active investigation, but it's also just completely unclear whether a suspect or suspects, plural, could still be at large. So there's just lots of questions remaining. Indeed. That is NPR's Debbie Elliott in Dadeville, Alabama. Thank you so much, Debbie. You're welcome.
This is 90.9 WBUR. If you're used to watching TV when and how you want, well, now you can do the same thing with listening to the radio. You can pause and rewind live radio with a new WBUR app downloaded in the App Store today. Still reckoning with some showers out there through the area. Tonight, clouds should continue, but things should dry up, and by morning, they should clear up, too. Mostly sunny skies should be breezy and not too warm tomorrow. Temperatures in the mid-50s. Wednesday should be sunny again, breezy again, highs in the mid-50s, a little bit warmer toward the end of the week. 52 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Cambridge Naturals, offering in-person and online events, including herbal classes, meditations, and more. Calendar at cambridgenaturals.com events. And Direct Tire and Auto Service, a dealer alternative, your local mechanic and tire dealer serving Newton, Watertown, and the surrounding communities, directtire.com. I'm Tiziana Deering. Tomorrow on Radio Boston, Boston City Councilor Kenzie Bach is the next head of the Boston Housing Authority, and that means she'll serve about 60,000 of the city's most vulnerable people. But advocates for affordable housing say it is chronically underfunded. So what's first on her agenda? That's Radio Boston, tomorrow at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Out in the Pacific Ocean, between Hawaii and California, swirling currents have created a giant accumulation of floating garbage. It is known as the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. Scientists recently went looking to see what kinds of life might be making a home on that trash. And as NPR's Nell Greenfield Boys reports, they found something unexpected. The Great Pacific Garbage Patch stretches across hundreds of thousands of square miles. Lindsay Harum is a marine ecologist. She says a lot of the garbage is plastic. People often think of it or you might be tempted to envision it as a large plastic island. That's not really the case. Instead of an island, it's like a soup with big chunks, like snarls of fishing nets, bobbing in a broth made of little bits of plastic suspended in the water. Harem is a research associate with the Smithsonian Environmental Research Center. She and some colleagues wanted to see what kind of life had set up shop on this garbage. So they asked a nonprofit called The Ocean Cleanup to bring back some common kinds of floating trash. Like some of our categories are bottles, we have buckets, we have crates. They look like laundry baskets, but they're actually used in fishing industry. Harem expected to find marine life clinging to this stuff, but she thought it would mostly be species that are known to be adapted to living far out in the open ocean. After all, the ocean and the coasts are different in terms of temperature, salinity, the amount of available nutrients. But one of the first pieces of junk she saw made her rethink her assumption. It was a buoy. There were these very frilly, beautiful hydroids, which kind of look like orange feathers. It's a critter related to jellyfish and a species that normally lives on the coast, not on the high seas. It was just so prominent. I was like, okay, (laughs) you know, there. We're actually going to see something here. The researchers examined 105 pieces of trash. In the journal Nature, Ecology, and Evolution, they say 70% had coastal species on them. 
they found dozens of coastal species, everything from anemones to little crustaceans to worms. 105 pieces of plastic in the grand scheme of things isn't a lot. <laughs> so to find, uh, to find that many coastal species on a relatively small sample size was shocking. <laughs> Plus, they saw signs that some were reproducing out there. Of course, the trash was also home to a lot of creatures that were already known to live way out in the ocean. They were living right next to their new neighbors from the coast and surely interacting with them. Sabina Resch is a marine biologist in Chile with the Universidad Católica del Norte. She wasn't on the research team, but has studied life on garbage in the South Pacific. I was surprised that they saw such high numbers of uh, coastal species. She says it's long been known that species from the coast can occasionally travel, like maybe on floating pieces of wood or attached to a ship. But now with the latest research, we see that it's just something that is normal now, that is happening all the time now, and that actually means that it's a huge risk. She says plastic trash seems to let coastal species colonize the open ocean and increases the chances that they could go to new places and become invasive. Nell Greenfield-Boyce, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. The Red Sox lost their annual Patriots Day game at Fenway Park. Today, final score, LA Angels 5, Red Sox 4. And should have Boston Marathon results coming up in about 15 minutes on WBUR. It's 4.52. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by New England Innovation Academy. Now enrolling for limited spaces in grades 6 to 12, boarding and day for fall 2023. NEIacademy.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Scott Detrow. Not long after the U.S. Forest Service was found responsible for starting the biggest fire in New Mexico's recorded history, Congress promised billions of dollars in aid. The Hermit's Peak fire destroyed more than 600 homes. But a year later, victims are still waiting on that federal money. In a forest of blackened skeletons of trees, there's a river flowing where there used to be a road. We're in the mountains of northern New Mexico. Snowmelt is rushing over the scorched ground from last year's historic fire. It's an unlikely place for an attorney-client meeting, but Carol Litherland is here with her lawyer, both of them with muddy feet, looking over burned buildings. What you see is, you know, the crumpled up roofing. You see, you know, the... the, Three or four feet of debris. Yeah, three or four... Litherland and her husband have lived on this ranch for more than three decades. We had home births for our children up in the mountains. (laughs) So lots of memories. Almost exactly a year ago, the fire swept furiously hot through their land, destroying the family home, the lodge where they were married. I can still picture it very, very well. And, you know, there's times where, you know, you'll dream at night and you'll think like it's still there. Since then, she's filled in copious paperwork demanded by her insurance and government agencies, but says she's got little help. It's frustrating not to be any farther along than this. I mean, at this point, our house still stands there. The debris has not been removed. It's easy to get discouraged. This is where lawyer Antonia Roybal Mack comes in. She rolls around in a bright blue Jeep with her law firm's logo on the side. 
people have applied for all of these programs none of them have come through all of them need a tremendous amount of paperwork so it's just fire fatigue at this point. Because the fire began as escaped prescribed burns by a federal agency, the U.S. Forest Service, the federal government took responsibility and Congress passed a law promising compensation. It appropriated nearly $4 billion. Royville Mack says she's been hired by hundreds of households and other entities like municipalities to put a number on their loss, but the claims process is complicated. We can't give our clients any certainty on this is what it is. This is how it looks. This is your path. This is what we expect to see happen. That's because the rules aren't finalized. The Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA, is running this compensation program. It issued interim regulations last year, but after hundreds of public comments raising concerns about things like a cap of 25% on the value of trees, the agency has no date for a final version. FEMA is saying, trust us that we are going to do right by you, but we're not going to give you a rule and we're not going to have a guidebook as to how we're all going to play this game. FEMA says a final rule isn't necessary to start making claims. We're encouraging all, everyone just to, if, to submit a claim. This is Paula Gutierrez, a local hire by FEMA who will work as an advocate for claimants. The agency is expecting as many as 30,000 claims. They're going to have the support that they need in order to kind of, you know, get the um, compensation that they really deserve. FEMA will begin processing simpler claims before issuing final rules. The lawyer, Royville Mack, is compiling reports from builders, hydrologists and arborists for that claims process. But in the event we used to sue the federal government, we will have the evidence necessary to do that. She's from the county of Mora, which was hit hard by the fire. Her father's ranch burned. And as we ride around, she says there's some social pressure. If I screw this up, I can't go to church here anymore. And I really like to go to church in Mora. On the ranch, Litherland feeds a half dozen cows. <coughs> They're planning to sell them. We honestly just need to turn our attention to getting our home rebuilt. Later, a caseworker will add notes and photographs from here to her file, one among many piles of paper representing someone's hopes of getting a life back. For NPR News, I'm Alice Fordham, near Rosiada, New Mexico. Time now for My Unsung Hero, our series from the team at Hidden Brain. My Unsung Hero tells the stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression on someone else. And today's story comes from Susan Greenstein Prescott. Her unsung hero is her 12th grade English teacher, Fred DeMeo. One day, he assigned everyone a poem to recite in front of the class. And I was terrified. I had a mild stutter, and I thought, there is no way I'm getting up there in front of my peers and speaking. So I went home, and I told my mother how I felt, and she wrote me a note asking me to be excused from doing the assignment in front of the whole class. So the day of the public speaking assignment, I stayed after school, so I did, instead of giving it in front of my peers, I gave it to him one-on-one -on -one after the school day. And we sat down and I recited my poem. And I don't remember if I stuttered, but he looked at me when I was finished and he said, what was wrong with that? And I just sat there and he said, I liked listening to your voice. And I had never heard that before. 
I think in his mind, it was so minor. And he wanted me to understand I have nothing to be afraid of. And I didn't realize how empowering that would be for me. And I never thanked him. You know, I graduated and I just, and I just moved forward like an 18-year-old person will, will do. When I graduated from college, the second job I had was being a corporate trainer. So I stand up in front of people and I speak and I do it all the time. And if I do stutter once in a while, big whoop. And I'd like Mr. DeMeo to know that he truly is an unsung hero because he played a big role in my very successful career and my life. And that was life-changing. I don't know where I would have gone if I felt like I had to keep my voice quiet because I was afraid of embarrassing myself. I'd like to give him my thanks for that kindness. Susan Greenstein Prescott. Since recording this story, she has found a way to reach Fred DeMeo, and she plans to write him a letter saying thank you. You can find more stories like this on the My Unsung Hero podcast. And to share the story of your unsung hero, record a voice memo on your phone and email it to us at myunsunghero at hiddenbrain.org. Support for My Unsung Hero comes from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com slash NPR. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. From iDrive with Remote PC, providing remote access to PCs, Macs, and servers from anywhere. Designed to assist those working from home. More at remotepc.com. From Cunard, sailing to over 250 destinations with Queen Mary II, Queen Victoria, Queen Elizabeth, and Queen Anne. Each voyage is dedicated to a world of fine dining and entertainment. Cunard.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. I'm senior business reporter Yasmin Amr. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Today, Kenyans take the top two spots in the 127th Boston Marathon. Evans Chibet becomes the first man to win two consecutive Boston Marathons since 2008. Helen O'Beary won the women's race, only her second marathon ever. It's Monday, April 17th, Patriots Day. This is All Things Considered. 
I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, a Delaware Superior Court judge says he's still preparing for the major trial of Dominion versus Fox to start tomorrow, even though both sides are engaging in settlement talks. And NPR foreign correspondent Frank Langford is wrapping up his tenure in the UK and reflects on his time covering everything from Brexit to the passing of Queen Elizabeth II. You have this sense now that the system, whether it's the royals, whether it's the British parliamentary system, is able to self-correct. These stories and more are coming up. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Police in Dadeville, Alabama are investigating a mass shooting Saturday night at a birthday party. Four people were killed. At least 28 others were injured. NPR's Debbie Elliott reports more than 36 hours after the shooting, authorities have released little information. The shooting at a Sweet 16 birthday party has this small East Alabama town reeling and asking why. Two high school seniors, a 19-year-old and a 23-year-old were killed, according to the coroner. Dadeville Police Chief Jonathan Floyd is asking for patience. We're working diligently. We're following up on every lead that we've got. Um, we're going to be very methodical. We are not, we're, we're not going to make any mistakes. Uh, our ultimate goal here is successful prosecution. Floyd declined to comment on whether anyone has been arrested. He's asking witnesses to come forward with anything they might have, including photos or videos from the party. Debbie Elliott, NPR News, Dadeville, Alabama. The White House says House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is trying to take the economy hostage. That's after the Republican leader delivered a speech on Wall Street this morning. NPR's Asma Hawley reports McCarthy slammed President Biden for playing partisan games with the debt ceiling debate. Experts are warning that the U.S. government could face a default on its debt as soon as this summer if Congress does not raise the debt ceiling. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy vowed that he will not pass a, quote, no-strings-attached debt limit increase. He proposed a one-year increase with spending cuts. Biden has said he will not negotiate over the debt limit, and a White House spokesman criticized McCarthy for breaking with the bipartisan norm, pointing out that even Donald Trump said in 2019, I can't imagine anybody ever even thinking of using the debt ceiling as a negotiating wedge. Asma Khalid. NPR News. The Pentagon says it expects to have more information in the next month and a half over how the military handles classified information. That's after an incident in which a National Guard airman was able to obtain classified documents. 21-year-old computer specialist from Massachusetts, Jack Teixeira, was charged last week with unlawfully copying and transmitting classified material. Elon Musk's SpaceX will have to wait at least a couple more days before it attempts a test flight. NPR's Jeff Bromfield reports a pressurization issue forced controllers to scrub today's scheduled launch. Starship is the biggest, most powerful rocket the world has ever seen. SpaceX founder Elon Musk hopes it will someday carry people to Mars. It was supposed to lift off this morning from Texas's Gulf Coast, but SpaceX had to call it off due to a single valve that was frozen. The weather was excellent. Uh, everything was looking good. Sadly, we just have the one issue. The company stopped the countdown. They will attempt another launch no sooner than two days from now. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Boston Marathon winners have been crowned with the laurel wreaths, and there's a repeat winner on the men's side. 
the greatest marathon runner in the world today on April 17th of 2023 is going to be Evans Chabet, the upset winner and champion of the 127th Boston Marathon. That is WCBB's call of the finish. Evans Chabet of Kenya had an unofficial time of two hours, five minutes, 54 seconds. It was the third fastest time in race history. World record holder Elliot Kipchoge finished sixth. Scott Fauble was the top American man. And on the women's side, Helen O'Beary of Kenya won in two hours, 21 minutes, 38 seconds. Again, here's the WCBB call. It is the left on Boylston, and then they go, you just run straight into history from there. Helen O'Beary going to win the 127th Boston Marathon. And Emma Bates was the top American runner on the women's side, finishing 32 seconds behind Obieri. Swiss uh, Paralympian Marcel Hoog won today's men's wheelchair race, his sixth Boston title. And American Susanna Scaroni won the women's wheelchair division for the first time. A damp day out there for marathon runners. The marathon's co-medical director, Dr. Charles Morris, says he began treating a growing number of cold and wet runners in the medical tents by mid-afternoon. Some of the symptoms included shivering and nausea. Medical teams had to use warm blankets, warm IV fluids, and mechanical blankets called bear huggers to warm people up. We try to keep people moving if we can. Sometimes uh, if, they, if they're that uncomfortable, they'll start to cramp up and it becomes really hard to move. And so that's why you'll see a lot of Ultimately, that's why people end up lying down and we, we got their legs up just to improve, improve blood flow up to the core. Morris says that although today is not ideal running weather, it still beats a hot day. Today's winners in the elite runners field were both from Kenya, as we said, Evans Chibet on the men's side, Helen O'Beary on the women's side. The head of Worcester's Department of Health and Human Services is visiting a supervised injection site in New York City today. Dr. Matilda Costilia says there are no current plans to open such a site in Worcester, but she says she wants to learn more about how such sites work and whether they could help fight drug addiction in her city. In the forecast, wet and gray continuing through the evening hours. But overnight tonight, we should have slow clearing. Lows falling to the 50s. Tomorrow should be sunny, windy, not real warm, though. Highs only in the mid-50s. Pretty much the same for Wednesday. Sunny, windy, stuck in the 50s. It's 5.08. WBUR supporters include Progressive Insurance. Progressive is looking for individuals in a variety of career fields who want to help build a culture of inclusiveness. More information, including application, at Progressive.com slash careers. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Scott Detrow in Washington. In a little bit, we will look at why the Women's Tennis Association is ending a boycott of China. It was put in place after a prominent Chinese tennis star disappeared from public view. But first, we turn to the major lawsuit against Fox News that's set to go to trial tomorrow. A voting technology company is suing the network over false claims that were broadcast following the 2020 presidential election. Dominion Voting Systems says it wants $1.6 billion and an apology from Fox. NPR media correspondent David Folkenflick is in Wilmington, Delaware, to cover the trial and joins us now. Hey, David. Hey, Elsa. So I know the trial was supposed to begin today, right? And the judge delayed it until tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Tell us why. Well, it appears uh, that lawyers for Fox uh, and, and Dominion conveyed the message to the judge that they were having serious talks, that perhaps they'd be able to settle uh, this. But ahead of a jury, uh, uh, Delaware Superior Court Judge uh, 
Eric M. Davis is running this a tight ship on this trial, and I think he would be happy for the two sides to resolve this to mutual satisfaction. Uh, Fox indicated in a legal filing late last night that Dominion had basically shaved $600 million off their ask for damages, and maybe this was a subtle sign they wanted to do some business. But Dominion said in a statement uh, to me earlier today on to other press outlets as well, no. Uh, It said uh, it was standing by its uh, ask for $1.6 billion uh, and that Fox knew it had uh, done that amount of damage and more. So the body language from both sides at the moment is we're headed back to court tomorrow morning. We'll see what transpires. Okay, and just remind us, what is at the heart of this lawsuit? The heart of this lawsuit, the allegations from Dominion Voting Systems that Fox News uh, broadcast lies about this voting tech company, that it participated in a scheme to defraud then-President Donald Trump of victory in November of 2020 by falsely throwing votes to Joe Biden. There's no truth to these claims. In fact, the judge has already found these claims are false. They're defamatory. That is harmful to uh, the reputation of this company. Uh, And really what's left on the table is should Fox be held liable for it? It doesn't meet a very tough legal standard called actual malice in which uh, First Amendment rights are protected and free speech rights are protected. But nonetheless, there is some accountability, very high bar to meet. And yet Dominion has acquired a just mountain of evidence to show that people People behind the scenes on Fox, people at the top levels of its corporate parent, down to the lowest levels of producers, with maybe a handful of exceptions, knew that what they were putting on the air wasn't true, did it anyway to try to appeal to disaffected Trump voters who were, of course, among the core of Fox's viewers. Okay, so assuming the parties do not settle, trial begins tomorrow. Tell us more about how things are expected to unfold from there. Well, you'd have a... uh, the end of jury selection happened first thing in the morning, and then you would hear the opening arguments. Uh, Dominion arguing, uh, look, there has to be some accountability. We believe in American system of freedom of speech, freedom of the press, and holding government officials accountable. This is not that. This is wanton lying. And Fox saying, look, you're going to do real damage to freedom of expression in this country and to the media itself if you don't hold, uh, if you don't allow us to have some room to get some things wrong, even as we're reporting a lot of these uh, debunking reports in in real time in good faith. Okay. I mean, David, even if a settlement were to happen, what would that settlement even look like? Like Dominion is asking for a lot of money. So there are two things. One is the money and the second thing is an apology. And this is a key component here. Uh, They've said from the outset at Dominion that they want Fox to as prominently let the public know, their viewing public know, that that what they put in the air was false and wrong and that they shouldn't have done it. And I think there's a seesaw effect. The stingier the apology, I think the bigger the dollar figure is going to have to be that Dominion can point to. And just stepping back real quick beyond the money, remind us of the stakes here in this case. I would call this the most important uh, defamation case involving a media company in four decades uh, for two reasons. One, it may define the limits of the protections for freedom of the speech or if it's maximalist and there's no accountability. And the second is the unique role that Fox plays not only in our media sphere, but in our political realms as well. That is NPR's David Volkenflik in Wilmington, Delaware. Thank you so much, David. You bet. We are continuing to follow new revelations about Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas's finances. Over the weekend, the Washington Post reported that for years, Thomas has been declaring rental income from a defunct real estate company, not the similarly named firm which took over its business. And today, CNN reported that Thomas intends to amend his financial disclosures to reflect a property sale to the Republican megadonor who has also taken Thomas on luxury vacations. The property sale and the vacations were first reported by ProPublica. 
As the disclosures mount, so does the big question. Will Justice Thomas face any consequences for these reported disclosure violations? University of Texas constitutional law professor Stephen Vladek joins me now. Hey, Steve. Hey, Scott. How are you? So we now have several different reports shedding light on various undisclosed finances. How does the latest alleged details update our overall understanding of Clarence Thomas and his financial reporting? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the biggest headline of the more recent ones is the headline from CNN this morning that he's now going to go back and retroactively amend his 2014 disclosure, basically a tacit concession that the 2014 disclosure was wrong to omit that property sale reported by ProPublica. You know, Scott, if you take all of these pieces together, it seems increasingly clear that one of two things has to be true. Either Justice Thomas is remarkably careless when it comes to financial disclosure requirements that apply not just to Supreme Court justices, but to large swaths of the entire federal government. Mm-hmm. Um, or it's worse, and that he's actually deliberately withholding this information from his disclosure forms because of what it would look like if this came out. You know, I don't know that we can be confident which of those is true, but it's got to be one of them. But let me ask you, assuming the, the CNN reporting is correct, does it surprise you that Thomas would be amending his disclosures? This is somebody who for, who for decades now has made it very clear he doesn't particularly care what the public view on his actions is. Yeah, I mean, I think this is actually a pretty good piece of evidence that that's not entirely true. And indeed, this is going to be at least the third time that Justice Thomas will have to have had go, gone back and retroactively amended his disclosures. He did it in 2011. Um, at the time, he said he just didn't understand what the filing instructions were. He did it again in 2020. And so, you know, Scott, there comes a point where the fact that he's responding this way and doing it over and over again, um, really, I think, stands in stark contrast to his public protestations that he's done nothing wrong mm-hmm. and that everything was by the by. Let's take his relationship with Harlan Crow. You have the luxury of vacations, now the reported property deal. There's reportedly a federal ethics law in question, but, you know, you can ask this in so many different ways with the Supreme Court. Who, if anyone, would enforce it? Yeah, I mean, I think that this is where we get into the stickiness of the Supreme Court as an institution. And historically, the way that any kind of ethics requirements were enforced against the Supreme Court was indirectly and through soft pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the, the best case in point we have is the 1969 resignation of then Justice Abe Fortas who, you know, wasn't under impeachment proceedings at the time, who wasn't under criminal indictment, indeed, who probably hadn't done anything unlawful, but who was nevertheless pressured off the court by mounting public uh, blowback once it came out that he had had these dealings with a shady financier named Lewis Wolfson. You know, Scott, that's been the norm historically. I think the question is whether in our current political climate we're going to see anything like that. I mean, we have we have seen how hard the partisan lines are over the Supreme Court in about the 15 seconds we have left. Would, would it surprise you for any sort of public uh, pressure to mount and see more of a response from it from the court? Yeah, I, I think I think it's all iterative, Scott. The first step is more investigation, more process. You know, maybe the Senate Judiciary Committee can lead the way on this. Mm-hmm. And as we find out more and more about Justice Thomas, perhaps that public pressure eventually does ratchet up. And someone actually thinks that the court has to do something about this. That's Stephen Vladek, professor of law at the University of Texas Texas at Austin. Thanks, Steve. Thank you.
16 months ago, the Women's Tennis Association, the global professional body for female tennis players, made a dramatic announcement that it was boycotting holding events in China because Peng Shuai, the Chinese tennis player, had disappeared from public view. That was after she accused a senior Chinese Communist Party official of coercing her into having sex. Well, now the WTA is making a U-turn and returning to China. NPR's Emily Fang reports. In 2021, now 37-year-old Peng Shuai detailed in a long-written online post of how she was allegedly coerced into sex a decade before by one of the country's most powerful Communist Party officials at the time, the country's vice premier, Zhang Gaoli, now 76. Instead of being investigated, her claims were covered up in China. Her post deleted, her name briefly censored in efforts to reach her unsuccessful. She did show up weeks later in a series of stilted videos like this one. Here, one of her coaches repeats the date and their playing strategy while Peng nods along, the video appearing to show she was doing all right. The WTA was not convinced, and after various efforts to meet Peng failed, the organization founded by Billie Jean King announced it was pulling out of China turning its back on a lucrative 10-year deal it signed with the country for more tournaments. And that's why the WTA's sudden decision to return starting this fall was so surprising. It feels like they've undermined all the good work that they'd previously done. That's Mark Dreyer, who writes about Chinese sports, including in his book, Sporting Superpower. You know, if you're China, your strategy was basically to ignore and deny and then just hold firm. And then you've come out with a, with a complete win. The WTA did not respond to NPR's request for comment or an interview. It said in a statement in English online that it backed out of China after it couldn't ensure Peng was safe. But now they felt they, quote, will never fully secure those goals, and it will be our players and tournaments who ultimately will be paying an extraordinary price. Their Chinese language press release made no mention of Peng Shuai at all. Dreyer also points out the WTA's voluntary China suspension occurred when most of China was under strict COVID controls and lockdowns. And now that China has finally lifted those restrictions... They've come back to China at the earliest opportunity that they were able to. China's foreign ministry said it opposed the politicization of sports when asked about the WTA returning. Meanwhile, Peng Shuai has stayed silent. Emily Fang, NPR News, Taipei. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR coming up in about 15 minutes. Protesters in Kansas City are demanding hate crimes charges be filed against a man who shot a black teenager who had gone to his house by mistake and knocked on the door. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Grogan and Company, fine art and jewelry auctioneers, whose spring auction weekend is May 6th and 7th. Learn more at groganco.com. An upswing today on Wall Street. The Dow rose three-tenths of a percent. S&P closed just over three-tenths of a percent. And the Nasdaq rose just under that. It gained 0.28 percent. Details coming up on Marketplace at 6.30. It's now 5.20. WBUR supporters include Soaring Hawk Meditation Center, celebrating the present moment with a new exhibit on mindfulness. Located in Littleton, Mass. More at SoaringHawkCenter.com. 52 degrees in the Boston area. 
dreary weather continues into the night tonight. Eventually, though, rain clouds should move out. We should wake up to clear skies tomorrow. Overnight lows about 51. Tomorrow shouldn't get too much warmer than 51. High of about 57 degrees. Should be sunny, though. And then for Wednesday, sunny, breezy, holding to the mid-50s. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose. Latin American fare with a modern twist. Drop off lunch catering for all occasions in Greater Boston. LaCuchara.com. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Investments. A dedicated advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. More at fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 manage food for work with online ordering from restaurants nationwide, budgeting tools, and payment by invoice. EasyCater.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Scott Detrow. The past seven years have been the most tumultuous in the United Kingdom since the end of World War II. The British people have voted to leave the European Union, and their will must be respected. Tonight, Prime Minister Boris Johnson now in intensive care, less than 24 hours after being hospitalised in his battle with coronavirus. A few moments ago, Buckingham Palace announced the death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. Frank Langford, our man in London, was there for it all. After five prime ministers and two monarchs, he is wrapping up his tenure in the United Kingdom. So we've got him on the line to try to make some sense of some of the history he's witnessed. Hey, Frank. Hey, Scott. So I want to start with this. You arrive in London in June 2016, a week before the Brexit vote. I blame you. You're not the only one. Uh, in other assignments I've had, big things have happened uh, not long after I've arrived. It's a good streak. But let's let's rewind to that moment before all of this change, what do you recall Britain being like at that moment just before Brexit? I mean, it was a pretty normal place. It was considered a quiet, relatively quiet news posting. I was coming out of China and was worried there might not be that much to report about. Britain was still a part of the European Union, the massive single economic market of half a billion consumers. And the UK, you got to remember, Scott, this seems like a long time ago, it was synonymous with dull but dependable methodical governance. So you're just settling in. The British voters surprise the world. (laughs) They decide to leave the UK. What was that like? It was really wild. I mean, I woke to the news in the morning and then ended up working 30 days straight traveling all over the country. And you got to remember the Brexit campaign. It was led by Boris Johnson. They had no plan for actually how to leave the European Union. So the result was political chaos. And this is the moment you lost your first prime minister. David Cameron immediately resigns. Theresa May takes over. And is it fair to say that her main legacy is trying and failing over and over and over again to come up with a plan and get it through Parliament to to actually implement Brexit? I think that's fair. I mean, her tenure was a disaster in many ways. At one point, she had a Brexit bill that lost by a modern parliamentary record, 230 votes. Ultimately, she was forced to resign. And at that point, the British political system, which had been well-respected for so long, was a bit of a laughingstock. And then along comes Boris Johnson. Yeah, and he wins a landslide election in 2019. He finally passes Brexit. It's been about three years since that went into effect. What's the impact been? 
Well, I think it clearly has damaged the British economy. Nearly all economists predicted this is what was going to happen. And the government's own fiscal watchdog expects the British economy will become 4% smaller than it would have been otherwise. And this comes, of course, at a difficult time because Britain's still struggling with the COVID hangover and high inflation triggered by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So going back to the initial vote, British people voted for Brexit 52% to 48 How do people feel about that decision now? And and what do you think years later the big lessons are? Yeah, I think there are clear signs of regret. Scott's recent polls show 58% would vote to rejoin the EU if they could. And part of that is some older Brexit voters passing away. But the other thing is the sense that there really has been an economic cost. And in terms of lessons, I think never take something so complicated as this, which is, you know, untangling a decades-long economic and legal relationship, take it to voters, because I think to some degree, you're maybe asking too much of them. The second lesson is don't lie to them, which is what Boris Johnson did. You remember before the referendum, he was driving around in this red double-decker bus with a banner that said Brexit would bring back more than $400 million to the National Health Service. That wasn't true at all. And by the way, the National Health Service, the NHS, is a wreck now, and part of the problem is indeed underfunding. Um, And these days, I'd say certainly in Europe and in certainly parts of the UK, Brexit's seen as this big self-inflicted wound. And yet, Despite taking the hits for lying, Johnson goes on to become the dominant political actor in the UK for much of that post-Brexit period. He wins this big landslide election. How did he do it? Johnson is a very complicated character, far beyond the performance that he puts on. And many people think it's absolutely a performance. He was very, very good at political messaging. He is funny and disarming. I've seen him in the, you know, on the stump and he's very good. He has this gift of making people feel good about Britain. And here he is after the Conservative Party elected him leader. This was back in 2019. We are going to energize the country. We're going to get Brexit done on October the 31st. We're going to take advantage of all the opportunities that it will bring in a new spirit of can do. And we are once again going to believe in ourselves and what we can achieve. And like some slumbering giant, we are going to rise and ping off the guy ropes of self-doubt and negativity. I don't know if can-do spirit really summed up everything that happened since then, huh? (laughs) No. I mean, you know, what happened, of course, is we ended up with political chaos. And Johnson, to some degree, kind of ignored the downsides to a great extent. He Part of his brilliance was his ability to make people feel good even though the circumstances were not good at all. He's also part of what I I think of as kind of like this British nostalgia machine. In his speeches, he would refer to Churchill, World War II, the British Empire – Britain, when it was much more powerful and wealthy, makes some people of that generation feel pretty good about it. Older conservative voters, you know, in his party, they they love that stuff. And speaking of the British nostalgia machine, I think honestly we could have spent this entire segment talking about all of the changes to the royal family during your tenure. And just to tick off some of them, Prince Andrew had to settle a civil suit after he was accused of sex with an underage girl. Prince Harry and Meghan, the Duchess of Sussex, they moved to the U.S. They publicly attacked the royal family on charges of racism, using Britain's tabloid press against them. And of course, last fall, Queen Elizabeth, this iconic figure, this the symbol of stability, died. H- how is the monarchy holding up? You know, I got to say pretty well. King Charles, he's avoided making any big mistakes and his approval ratings are have been going up. Meanwhile, Meghan and Harry's attacks have really backfired here. They're widely seen, honestly, as whiners. I think they've actually released two new books since we've started talking. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, what, what all does this tell us about the monarchy? Because as you reported, there was such skepticism about Prince Charles becoming King Charles. And yet it seems from here, at least, like the public's accepting him. I think it's a fairly resilient institution 
this has been, as you just described it, some of the worst years, certainly since the death of Princess Diana uh, back in, in 1997. And it endures in part by, I think, weathering criticism quietly. And then, you know, in the case of King Charles, not making further mistakes to make things worse. And let's get back to, to the actual system of governing. How is that looking these days as you're looking to depart London? Is it, is it getting better? I think it is. I think it might be settling down a bit. You know, one reason is Boris Johnson's party, you know, the lawmakers there basically forced him out for lying over COVID lockdowns. Then you had Liz Truss as prime minister. She put in a, a budget that tanked markets. And again, the lawmakers pushed her out very quickly. I was talking to Brian Kloss. He's an American political scientist who teaches at University College London. And, and this is what he said. Conservative voters did not approve of her. And when she failed, they turned on her. And she lasted for 49 days precisely because British democracy is still resilient. And I think that, you know, Scott, that kind of captures the narrative arc here over the past seven years in the United Kingdom. You know, it began with complete chaos. And you have this sense now that the system, whether it's the royals, whether it's the British parliamentary system, is able to self-correct. And we now have a prime minister, Rishi Sunak, former treasury secretary, a technocrat, and he's so different than Boris Johnson. He seems to some degree a return to, you know, frankly, a dollar, but but also a more dependable politics. And I, I mean that in the best possible way. That's Frank Langfitt, who's about to Brexit from NPR's London Bureau and begin a new assignment back in the U.S. Thank you, Frank. Hey, great to talk, Scott. This is NPR News. I'm Asma Khalid. As a political reporter for NPR, I talk to people around the country about their lives and their needs. And I believe there is one thing we all need, a news source we trust. Tens of millions come to NPR for exactly that. When you donate your old car to this station, we'll turn it into tomorrow's news. The news you trust. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The U.S. Supreme Court is expected to take up a lawsuit that could affect the availability of a widely used prescription drug for abortions. NPR's Jason DeRose says more than 200 groups favoring abortion rights are calling on the Justice Department to protect access to the drug. Among those signing the amicus brief is the group Americans United for the Separation of Church and State. The organization objects to abortion bans, saying they enshrine one religious viewpoint into law. It argues that religious freedom means citizens should be able to make their own reproductive decisions based on their own beliefs. Joining the brief are a number of religious organizations, including Catholics for Choice. The largest cohort of faith groups signing the amicus brief comes from various Jewish groups including the Central Conference of American Rabbis, Jewish Women International, and the Union for Reform Judaism. Jason DeRose, NPR News. In New York City, Republicans upset with Donald Trump's indictment are escalating their war on the prosecutor who charged him, holding a hearing today on Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg's home turf. Here's GOP Representative Jim Jordan. Today's hearing is about the administration of justice and keeping communities safe something that has always been a central focus of the House Judiciary Committee. Our witnesses today have felt the effects of crime up close and personal. Democrats call the hearing a partisan stunt to amplify conservative anger at Manhattan's first black DA, 
and deflect from Trump's criminal charges. Here's New York Democrat Jerry Nadler. Ambassador Lynn Tracy says she visited Evan Gershkovich at Moscow's notorious Lefortova prison. She says she found him in good spirits. He feels well and is holding up. Tracy reiterated... This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Runners are still crossing the Boston Marathon finish line in Copley Square this afternoon. Despite some rain, huge crowds lined the course, cheering on the runners, who also had to reckon with some strong winds. WBUR's Alex Ashlock has the results. Defending champion Evan Shabet of Kenya has won the Boston Marathon for the second straight year. He surged to the front at Heartbreak Hill to spoil the much-anticipated debut of world record holder Elliot Kipchoge who finished sixth. Helen O'Beary won the women's race in a sprint down Boylston Street to complete the Kenyan sweep. The top Americans in the men's and women's pro races were Scott Fobble, who finished seventh, and Emma Bates, who came in fifth. Marcel Hoog of Switzerland won the men's wheelchair race in course record time, his sixth victory here, and American Susanna Scaroni won her first Boston title, despite having to stop early in the race to tighten her wheel. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Alex Ashlock at the Marathon finish line. The disposition of Boston Marathon's crowd was sunny today despite the clouds. So says Liz McClellan, who came out to support her sister, who was also running, or who was running. Uh, McClellan lives in New Hampshire, but is a Boston native. The last time I came to Boston was during the pandemic, and it was a ghost town, and it was a little heartbreaking. Um... Just to walk through the streets last night, today, it's a feeling like nowhere else. Happy people, nobody's been rude, just a beautiful and international energy, which I love. The MBTA's troubles didn't stop for the marathon. Green Line riders, many of whom were coming from or going to the race, experienced delays. At one point, the MBTA tweeted out that the signal problem near Arlington Station ground trains to a halt for at least 15 minutes. Later, eastbound service between Arlington and Back Bay was replaced by shuttle buses. A disabled train near Boylston also held up operations for at least 25 minutes. Gasoline prices continue to rise in Massachusetts. The average price of regular gas this week in the state is uh, $3.39 a gallon. That's up 5 cents from last week, up 11 cents from a month ago. 51 degrees now in the Boston area. Showers off and on into the evening. Clouds should eventually clear out overnight tonight, and things should dry up. Down around 50 degrees tonight, tomorrow and Wednesday. Lots of sunshine could nudge 60 degrees. This is WBUR. It's 535. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Cunard, offering travelers an opportunity to voyage aboard Cunard's Queen Elizabeth to Alaska. Guests can explore ports and scenic cruising through Glacier Bay National Park with locally sourced cuisine. More at cunard.com. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com slash NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. In a moment, we'll hear from residents of Sudan's capital Khartoum about the violence that broke out there over the weekend. First, we turn to Kansas City, where there are increasing calls to charge the white homeowner who shot a 16-year-old black teen who rang his doorbell by mistake. Ralph Yarl was attempting to pick up his twin brothers from a friend's house last Thursday, but went to the wrong location a block away. After Yarl rang the doorbell, the homeowner shot him. 
The teen has been released from the hospital and is recovering at home. Savannah Holly Bates of member station KCUR has been following all of this. Hey, Savannah. Hi, Scott. So let's start with the background. What else do we know about what happened last Thursday? Yeah, so according to the family, Jarl was going to pick up his twin younger brothers, but did not have his phone with him. He was supposed to go to Northeast 115th Terrace, and instead went to Northeast 115th Street, a block away. He rang the doorbell, and according to the family, the homeowner shot him through the glass door, and again when he was on the ground. He was taken to the hospital around 10 p.m., according to the police, but the family says he had to go to three different houses nearby before someone would help him. Wow. And over the weekend, hundreds turned out to protest the shooting and the lack of charges against the homeowner. What did people what did people say? And so they gathered in front of the shooter's house demanding justice. They want him charged and said the police should have done so already. They also celebrated the fact that Jarl is still alive. Many of the protesters said that if the roles were reversed and a black man shot a white boy, the shooter would have already been arrested and charged. Justice Gatson is a community organizer who spoke at the protest, and she said the incident is proof that police don't protect black people in Kansas City. Those systems have got to change, especially one that's not going to hold somebody accountable when it would have been any of us. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. It's a two-tiered system. And so let's not play about it. We cannot work with a system that is intent on killing us. There are more protests planned for tomorrow as well, outside of the Kansas City Police headquarters. Okay, and let's talk about the police. What are they saying? Yes, so in Missouri, there's a stand-your-ground law in place, meaning that if a homeowner fears for his or her life, they have the right to use deadly force. Obviously, in this case, it centers around a 16-year-old showing up unexpectedly at someone's house late at night. And so the question about whether that justifies shooting someone is, um, is still... A huge debate here. Uh, The local prosecutor says the delay in charging the shooter is because his office was waiting for the Kansas City Police Department to refer charges to his office. Uh, Here's here's the Kansas City Police Chief Stacey Graves. After consulting with the Clay County Prosecutor's Office, the homeowner was released pending further investigation due to the need to obtain a formal statement from the victim, forensic evidence, and compile additional information for a case file to be presented. A formal statement is planned for is is planned and forthcoming as a teen's injuries allow. Now, late today, the police department sent out a news release saying it forwarded an investigative case file to the prosecutor to determine if charges are appropriate. And in about 20 minutes, the prosecutor's office is hosting a press conference. Um, so we may know more then. We got about 15 seconds left. What is Yarl's family saying? They're happy that he's been released, but they're demanding that he be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. Um, They've secured prominent civil rights attorneys Ben Crump and Lee Merritt on the case. That is Savannah Holly Bates of member station KCUR in Kansas City. Thank you so much. Thanks, Scott. Sudan's sprawling capital, Khartoum, has been shattered by three days of nonstop violent urban warfare. While the rival generals of two ruling military factions launch barrages of heavy artillery, bombs, and gunfire at each other, the six million residents of the city are trapped inside and unable to venture out. Some have no power, no water, and no food. And no one has any idea of when or how the violence will end, as NPR's Emmanuel Akinwotu reports. The nights in Khartoum bring no peace. Tanks rumble through the empty streets. During the day, the quiet is ruptured by endless bombing. The roar of fighter jets striking from the sky and the constant crackle of gunfire. 
This is the soundtrack to Three Days of War. In Khartoum, like many other besieged parts of Sudan, a bloody power struggle is unraveling between two former allies, General Abdul Fattah Bohan, the de facto head of state and head of Sudan's army, and General Mohamed Hamdan Dagolo, otherwise known as Hemeti. He leads the Rapid Support Forces, a notorious paramilitary group that has become a key state actor in Sudan over decades. Both sides were meant to integrate as part of a fragile transition process back to civilian rule. But bitter disputes for supremacy within an integrated army and rivalry for power in a future democratic Sudan has led to this. And while the warring generals promise victory, Sudanese people in the final days of Ramadan pray to survive the fight and watch as their country falls apart. Yeah, I can hear you very well, but I have a severe headache because of the stress. Muja Khatib is 42. She's living in the southern part of the city. I reached her by WhatsApp and she told me she woke at 10 a.m. on Saturday to several missed phone calls just before the fighting started. One of my friends, he's an army officer. He called me eight times and I said, what's wrong with him? And when I called him back, he told me like, where are you? Don't leave your house because the war has started. Then she started to hear explosions and then the power went out. She told me she hasn't been able to buy food and is barely eating to ration the little that she has. I don't have enough water. And since yesterday, I didn't eat more than one bread. I was just taking small piece of cheese and I'm just like drinking coffee. How can I buy food or how can I? I don't know. No one is, was ready for this, you know. Food prices are going up. Tap water is no longer running. She hasn't had steady power for over a day. All around, the fighting continues and the casualties rise in the hundreds. We can see that it's escalating pretty much quickly. Hamad Hikmat owns a radio station in Sudan. Like millions, he and his family are sheltering at home. Over the last four years in Khartoum, millions have seen shocking violence. Hundreds of democracy protesters have been killed. But this is different. A war is unfolding in a way many never imagined, with battling groups of former militias and soldiers roaming around their home city. These guys are going to start now, you know, getting to people's houses by force. Then the rape will start, the theft will start, you know, because you're talking about militia now roaming freely in the capital city. And very soon, Ahmad says, the outside world will have no idea what is going on. Now we have internet. I can speak to you over WhatsApp. Tomorrow, the day after, we will not be able to have this conversation. We need to be ready. The way it's going right now, it doesn't look like it's going to stop soon. For Muja, this means she'll have to endure these days in isolation. She usually lives with her 15-year-old son. He's at a relative's house and was meant to return home on the day the fighting started. But he couldn't safely travel across the city. I'm not sure if I can see my son again. I called my mother friend where my son is staying and I asked about him. And they told me he's okay. He's sleeping, but he's sleeping under the bed. So it seemed that he's afraid. Emmanuel Akimwotu, NPR News, Lagos. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Bus ridership is picking up again after a COVID drop, but it's still far below where it was three years ago and even lower than it was 30 years ago. 
So Stephen Basada and Carly Berlin of the Gulf States Newsroom hopped on a bus in New Orleans. They wanted to better understand why travelers might be choosing other ways to get where they're going. That was our bus? bus. So we just missed our bus. Just missed the bus. Okay, before we get into how our bus ride challenge went, we should explain the goal. Yeah, so a while back, I was talking to the former head of New Orleans Transit Agency, Alex Wiggins, and he told me about how much better the city's bus system was when he was growing up here in the 70s. I just remember walking out to a bus stop, and no matter what, within 10 to 15 minutes, something's coming. Like, he could get from his house all the way across town to this old amusement park in one hour, using just buses and the ferry. I literally, as a kid, remember getting in trouble because we got home at like 11, 30, 12 o'clock at night. But we all did it on public transit. <laughs> so. <laughs> so we decided to recreate that bus route to compare Wiggins' childhood transit memories to the 2023 bus reality. And one hour was the time to beat. All right, time to go. All right. Now, the first bus goes great. But then... Shoot, okay. <laughs> Ferry's not running. Um... Oh, okay. So we wait for a shuttle to take us across the Mississippi River instead. Now, New Orleans has struggled to build back its transit system ever since Hurricane Katrina, which means service has gotten a lot worse for riders like Rihanna Bickham. I've been on the bus since 7, well, trying to get to work since 7, so... Since 7 this morning. Since 7 this morning. And And I work, like, right across from 1230 right now. Yeah. Bickham usually commutes to the French Quarter, but with no ferry and no clear sign saying what bus to take instead, she got really turned around and missed half her workday. This has been my number one form of transportation. And today it was just like, it let me down a little bit. It let me down just a little. As for us, we eventually made it to the other side of the river, hopped on a streetcar before taking our final bus. And on that loud last ride, some big New Orleans bus news actually dropped online. They shared their proposed route for this hot thing in transportation right now, bus rapid transit. Now, bus rapid transit's really a fancy catch-all name for things like priority bus lanes. Dozens of transit agencies across the country are either trying it or expanding it. The selling point is getting something closer to the speed of a rail system without having to pay for one. Would this have sped up our route? (laughs) I think so. I think it's pretty fair to say. But BRT doesn't solve a lot of the problems that haunt transit agencies today, like a shortage of bus drivers, more Americans own cars, and work at home. Yeah, but at least it would have made today's ride a lot faster. Final time is (laughs) one hour, 57 minutes, 15 seconds. We were not even close to our one hour goal. Are we going to take the bus back? I feel like I need to eat some lunch. Okay, Uber? Yeah, maybe Uber. so. Okay, I'll put on my phone. A lot more expensive than the bus, 25 bucks. Also a lot faster, just 22 minutes. For NPR News, I'm Carly Berlin. And I'm Stephen Basaha in New Orleans. This is All Things Considered from NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. Raw weather continues into the night. Eventually tonight, rain clouds should move out. We should wake up to clear skies tomorrow. Overnight lows about 51. Tomorrow shouldn't get too much warmer than that. Highs of about 57. Should be sunny, though. And then Wednesday, sunny, breezy. Temperatures in the mid to upper 50s. It's 548. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with cooking and baking workshops, technique and regional cuisine series, and cooking couples classes. CambridgeCulinary.com. Red Sox lost their final game of the series with the Angels today at Fenway 5-4. The loss caused the Red Sox to fall below 500. Marathon results coming up here at 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Worcester Art Museum with Frontiers of Impressionism, featuring works by over 30 artists, including Monet, Renoir, Cassatt, and more. Now open, WorcesterArt.org. I'm Tiziana Deering. Tomorrow on Radio Boston, Boston City Councilor Kenzie Bach is the next head of the Boston Housing Authority, and that means she'll serve about 60,000 of the city's most vulnerable people. But advocates for affordable housing say it is chronically underfunded. So what's first on her agenda? That's Radio Boston, tomorrow at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The 127th Boston Marathon is now in the books. Evans Chibet of Kenya won the men's race for a second year in a row. He topped world record holder Elliot Kachogi, who finished sixth in his first Boston Marathon today. Kenyan Helen O'Beary won the women's race for the first time. In the wheelchair division, Marcel Hoog of Switzerland won the men's race, his sixth Boston title. American Susanna Scavroni won her first Boston title, despite having to make a pit stop to tighten her wheel. And while the racers had to deal with wind and rain that didn't keep thousands of people from cheering on the marathoners today, WBR's Andrea Perdomo Hernandez introduces us to two women who were determined to keep the energy high for runners and spectators. In a sea of spectators wearing raincoats or holding umbrellas, two women dressed in green cheerleader outfits whoop and cheer as they shake their pom-poms at people who pass them by on Boylston Street. Luisa Maria Hernandez says it's the second year in a row she and her friend have dressed up for the marathon. We just want to cheer people on. We think it's amazing that they're like just using their bodies to run this and the city comes together and we wanted to be a part of it. Hernandez's friend, Claire McCowan, says this is a special day for the pair as well. This is our favorite day of the year. It's our friend's anniversary. It's our friend anniversary. The two say they knew each other but didn't really become friends until last year's marathon. Each came in their own costume. McAllen says they learned a lot about each other through that experience. Like, what are your interests? Are you okay making a fool of yourself? Yeah. It's a lot there. Yeah. Are you willing to wear a cheer costume in public even though you can't even do a cartwheel? Hernandez says today the two found themselves cheering on their fellow spectators some who came from across the country or even overseas. That's a big feat to like take what you're doing for your day and be a part of something bigger. And I think for us, we're just excited to be able to say like, thank you for being here. You deserve this too. The two are making plans to cheer on Paris Marathon runners in person next year. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo Hernandez.
Jazz pianist Ahmad Jamal died Sunday at the age of 92. Jamal helped define American jazz during his eight decades of performances. Even Miles Davis took cues from him early on in his career. Karen Michelle has this appreciation. Ahmad Jamal was a bit of a cipher. Cagey about his name, fond of wearing shades in the daytime, revealing only what he wished in his music and in his life. People get after me, uh, Karen, because if I may, because I say there's no such thing as a creative person. This business of we don't create a, a fly or a raindrop or a snowflake but we can reflect creativity. And when we reflect creativity, we discover. And uh, uh, that's the whole thing about life, discovery. And that's what I live for, discovery. That discovery began when he was just three years old in Pittsburgh, where he was born on July 2nd, 1930, named Frederick Russell Jones. My mother's piano, I walked by it, and my Uncle Lawrence said, can you do that, what I'm doing? And Uncle was quite surprised that I played everything he played, and the rest is history. By the time he was 20, he'd been a touring musician and become Ahmad Jamal. Jamal shows me a photograph of the place of what he calls his birth. This is the uh, oldest mosque in the United States where I went to study. I studied at this mosque in Chicago. It's in Chicago that he had a jazz club, and before he was 30, a hit record, Ponciana. It stayed on the charts for 108 weeks. I just knew that we had something of value. I had the feeling that it was gonna be a success. Not to the extent that, no, of course, you can't be that, that clairvoyant. Still, jazz critics weren't convinced of the seriousness, the merits of Jamal's chops, dismissing him as a cocktail pianist. They weren't fighting words. As Jamal said, he wasn't playing jazz. I don't think you'll ever find uh, anywhere in the quote bio, quote unquote, <laughs> of Duke Ellington where he called himself, I'm a jazz player. He's an American classicist, that's what he was. That's what I am. Jamal played and released new recordings well into his 80s, increasingly performing his own compositions and continuing to influence younger players, MacArthur Award-winning pianist Jason Moran among them. I think Ahmad is, is timeless in a way that almost doesn't age. So there's something about what he how he perforates the music, the air that he kind of infuses into it that always allows for the contemporary listener 
no matter what decade they are in, to kind of fit themselves inside or have a moment to digest a crazy phrase he just played, you know? When we last spoke at his bucolic home with a creek and a waterfall out back, Jamal was healthy, vibrant, watched his diet. We'd stopped talking long enough for a snack. Then I asked him about the inevitable, death. You can't take anything with you. All that's going there is what did you do? What did you do? That's all that's going in there. Because paradise and hell begin right here, in my opinion. I've experienced both. A little bit, just a little bit. I hope I can experience a whole lot of paradise in this world and in the hereafter. Believe me. May it be so. For NPR News, I'm Karen Michelle. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Keeper, a password manager designed to keep passwords secure and protect against cyber attacks. Websites and app logins are accessible across devices and passwords are shareable. More at keepersecurity.com. From Peacock with the new original series, Mrs. Davis, about the world's most powerful artificial intelligence and the nun devoted to destroying her. From Tara Hernandez and Damon Lindelof, streams April 20th on Peacock. And from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. Tomorrow morning here at 90.9 WBUR, the Fox versus Dominion trial begins. Checks and balances at the U.S. Supreme Court and buses as batteries in Beverly. All that plus it's tax day when you wake up tomorrow at 90.9 WBUR. Red Sox lost their final game of the series with the Angels today at Fenway Park 5-4. The loss caused the Red Sox to fall back to 500. And first night at the playoffs for the Boston Bruins is tonight. The Bees will take on the Florida Panthers at the Garden. The puck drops at 7.30. This is 90.9 WBUR, 54 degrees now in Boston at 5.59. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Today in the 127th Boston Marathon, Kenyon swept the top two spots. Evans Chibet became the first man to win two consecutive Boston marathons in 15 years. Helen O'Beary won the women's race, only the second marathon she's ever run. The unexpected results and records broken coming up. This is All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, why did fighting break out over the weekend in Sudan and what's at stake? 
The EPA has released new emissions rules that strongly suggest making the switch to electric vehicles. That's led a lot of consumers to wonder if they should buy an EV now or wait. One reason to wait is because there are just going to be more EVs on the market. Something that can sort of fit in every garage, every driveway, as long as you have a place to charge it. These stories and Wall Street numbers are coming up. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The FBI has arrested two people in New York for allegedly operating an unofficial police station in lower Manhattan for the Chinese government. Justice Department officials say it's part of a broader effort by China to target Chinese dissidents in the U.S., more from NPR's Ryan Lucas. The two defendants, both U.S. citizens, are charged with obstruction of justice and conspiring to act as an agent of the Chinese government. According to court papers, the pair set up an undeclared police station for China's Ministry of Public Security in the heart of New York City's Chinatown in early 2022. Here's the U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of New York, Brian Peace. The defendant's actions under the direction of the Chinese government are flagrant violations of American sovereignty. In a separate case, the Justice Department also unveiled charges against 40 Chinese security officials for allegedly using fake social media accounts to harass Chinese dissidents in the United States. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington. Former President Donald Trump's civil trial for sexual assault and defamation will proceed next week. NPR's Ilya Meritz reports a federal judge has turned down Trump's request for delay. Trump's accuser is E. Jean Carroll, a writer who says Trump raped her in the changing room of a Manhattan department store in the mid-1990s. She filed suit last year after a change in the law allowing plaintiffs to file decades-old claims. Trump's lawyer had sought to delay the trial by a month, saying the publicity around Trump's recent criminal indictment for allegedly falsifying business records could make it hard to select an impartial jury. In rejecting Trump's motion, the judge noted that Trump himself has driven more media coverage by posting to social media and giving interviews. Trump denies he assaulted Carroll. Ilya Meritz, NPR News, New York. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell's back at work at the Capitol today. The Kentucky Republican has been recovering for more than a month after a fall at a hotel that resulted in a concussion and fractured rib. NPR's Susan Davis says more. McConnell returns just as the Senate is debating whether to make an accommodation for another senator with medical issues. Democrats need Republican support for their plan to temporarily replace California Democrat Dianne Feinstein, who's recovering from shingles, on the Judiciary Committee. Her absence has stalled many of President Biden's judicial nominees. It's unclear when Feinstein can return to Washington. McConnell has not yet said whether he will support Democrats' request. Also returning to the Senate is Pennsylvania Democrat John Fetterman, who sought inpatient treatment for six weeks to address clinical depression. Fetterman said the care he received changed his life. Susan Davis, NPR News, Washington. Head of the European Central Bank, Christine Lagarde, says the battle between the U.S. and China over global trade is threatening to fragment the world economy into rival blocks. Lagarde warning today, economic data going back more than 120 years shows geopolitical risks invariably lead to higher inflation. On Wall Street, the Dow is up 100 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The 127th Boston Marathon today has featured a back-to-back championship and a record-breaking finish. 
The winner of the men's division for the second year in a row was Evans Chibet of Kenya. Helen O'Beary of Kenya was running her first Boston Marathon and only her second marathon ever, and she won. The physical and psychological trauma caused by the marathon bombings 10 years ago looms large for many in Boston, but for some in the crowd today, it was also a day of healing. Liz McClellan was born and raised in Boston. She says tonight is going to be for celebrating. Plenty of time to get home, but it's just, you know, Boston's alive and it's just a very healing spirit, especially this being the 10th anniversary. It's just really a healing energy that the runners share with us and we share with them. So nobody's running alone and nobody's watching alone. Today's weather wasn't ideal for marathoning, but it's better than it could have been. That's according to Boston EMS Chief James Hooley. Compared to uh, the effects of heat, that's usually much, much worse for us. Uh, on the warmer days, the, these tents would have been much more crowded. All these beds would have been full. Hooley says as of 3 this afternoon, EMS only had to transport three runners due to exhaustion. That compares to the hot race day in 2012 when they had 84 transports. While a complete list of today's Boston Marathon winners with WBR's Alex Ashlock in about 15 minutes. The Jewish Holocaust Day of Remembrance, Yom HaShoah, begins this evening. The Jewish Community Relations Council commemorated the day yesterday with an event at Fennel Hall. The council's chief operating officer, Erica Daniel Starer, says, Strater says that events like these are especially important amid a rise in anti-Semitism. I don't think we have any illusions about eradicating anti-Semitism and hate in this moment. It's about education. It's about allyship. And it's about trying to um, to sit at the table and engage people in nuanced conversations and, and listen. The Anti-Defamation League reported nearly 3,700 anti-Semitic incidents nationwide last year, the highest number on record. Bars near the TD Garden are gearing up for tonight's Bruins playoff game against the Florida Panthers. The Harp is right across the street from the Garden. Manager Rob Guest says the Boston team's success in the postseason is great business well into June. Kind of a gloomy day today, but uh, we still expect a, a, a decent crowd here to watch the game. As we get further on in the playoffs, it gets absolutely nuts in here. We have, uh, you know, all the tables taken. We're at standing room capacity, and uh, it's just a fun vibe. The puck drops at seven thirty tonight. Red Sox lost their final game of the series with the Angels today at Fenway, five to four. And in the forecast, raw through the evening hours. Eventually tonight, rain clouds should move out. We should wake up to clear skies and sunshine tomorrow. Temperatures in the mid seven, uh, mid fifties. That is about fifty seven degrees. This is ninety point nine WBUR. It's six oh seven. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Scott Detrow in Washington. Today marks the third day of intense fighting in Sudan. In the capital, Khartoum, and around the country, citizens are hiding in their homes to avoid airstrikes and machine gun fire. At the center of the conflict are Sudan's army and a powerful paramilitary group known as the Rapid Support Force, or RSF. To understand the fighting, you have to go back to 2021, when they worked together to orchestrate a coup. Now the generals leading these two armed factions, former allies, are at war over which should lead the country's defense as Sudan transitions back to a civilian-led government. And both sides are demanding surrender. 
Cameron Hudson is here to tell us more about the conflict. He is a senior associate at the Center for Strategic and International Studies Africa program and served as a special envoy to Sudan during the Obama administration. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thanks for having me. So let's start with the two groups at the center of this conflict. We have the Army and the RSF. Tell us about the Army first. Who is in charge and what is their claim on leadership? Well, their claim on leadership is really that they've led the country for the better part of the last 50 years. It's a military general named Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, who took over the country essentially when uh, the longtime dictator Omar al-Bashir was removed from power back in 2019. He has been essentially running the country for a period of that time. There was a civilian transition that he was working with. But as you said, in 2021, there was a coup that removed the civilian prime minister And for the better part of the last uh, 16 months, they've been negotiating uh, the conditions under which a new civilian prime minister could return to office. And what do we need to know about the RSF to understand their motivations? Well, the RSF are a a militia group on a mercenary outfit. Um, They emerged from the remnants of the Janjaweed Arab militia, which people will remember terrorized uh, Darfuri civilians for a long time uh, during the conflict there. They were given title and uh, a kind of normalized role in the security services of the country by Omar al-Bashir, essentially as a counterweight to the Sudan Armed Forces. We've seen the RSF grow very powerful over the last decade because they've uh, been a mercenary army selling their services to uh, the Saudis in Yemen or in Libya and other places. They also control large areas of gold mining operations in the north of the country. So they've become very rich. And with that wealth, they've been able to recruit an army of as many as 100,000 people, which now rivals the power and the strength of the Sudan Armed Forces. And who's in charge of the RSF? What do we need to know? The commander in charge of the RSF is a General uh, Hamdan Degallo, uh, otherwise known as Hemeti, his known de guerre. He is formerly a camel herder. He's reputed to have been uh, illiterate until very recently. I think uh, the military has tried to to paint him as a kind of rube, you know, from from the peripheral areas. Tried to disparage him as a fighter and as a leader, um, and really kind of keep the RSF at a distance, suggesting that they are not fit to govern the country. You know, Sudan has seen political violence before and military coups before. What's different here? Well, I think the the difference now and the most dangerous element is that this conflict is taking place in cities across the country. Uh, This fundamental tension in Sudan for decades has been this tension between the center, the capital, and the peripheral areas, where the capital has been ruled by kind of Arab elites and lesser tribes have been repressed all throughout the country. This is now uh, being looked upon as an opportunity for those repressed kind of rural areas to rise up and to bring the violence to the capital. The problem is, of course, that this is playing out in a city of 5 million people in Khartoum, where civilian casualties are, are at great risk and where civilian infrastructure can be easily destroyed, and frankly, where urban dwellers don't have the kind of coping mechanisms that rural dwellers do if water gets cut off or electricity gets cut off or they can't get to the market to to buy provisions. So it's a real problem for the civilians that are inhabiting and watching their city be destroyed. That's Cameron Hudson of the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Thanks so much. Thank you. And coming up in a few minutes, David's bridal is filing for bankruptcy again. We'll take a look at what's ahead for the wedding dress superstore. 
if the EPA gets its way, there will be a whole lot more electric cars on the dealership lot in the future. Under proposed emission standards unveiled last week, car makers would need around two-thirds of their sales to be electric vehicles by 2032. Keith Barry, an autos reporter for Consumer Reports, says that means cheaper EVs, too. Because you can't get to those numbers selling vehicles that are, you know, around $60,000, which is where the average EV is right now. You need more mass market vehicles. Great news if you want to buy an electric vehicle in a decade. Right now, there are tax incentives for buyers, but only on certain vehicles. So I asked Keith Barry to list some reasons why someone looking to buy a car now should consider an EV, apart from, you know, trying to do the right thing for the environment. You have this incredible performance. You know, these cars are posting zero to 60 times that would have made a, you know, a muscle car make it onto the cover of Road and Track 15 (laughs) years ago. And, you know, they're family vehicles. You might save some money on fuel costs as well. Uh, That's that's different depending upon the car and depending upon the region of the country. But in general, you'll probably save some money on fuel. So there are all these great things about the cars themselves, but you'd have to have some money in order to do so. Uh, There are only a couple of inexpensive EVs on the market. Okay, well, besides purchase price, what would be other reasons to potentially wait before getting an electric vehicle? One reason to wait is because there are just going to be more EVs on the market. You know, GM is coming out with some affordable EVs. Another reason to wait might be if you don't have a place to charge an EV, either at home, if you have to get a charger installed, or if you're trying to drive somewhere on, you know, where there just isn't an adequate charging infrastructure. And that's something that there are also going to be massive investments in, you know, the more EVs that are guaranteed to hit the market. Well, that means that there are going to have to be more places for them to be plugged into charge while on a road trip. Well, what if you're out there and you're thinking to yourself, maybe I should buy a used EV? What are the trade-offs? The biggest trade-off is that there just aren't that many used EVs. EVs are only about a little more than 5% of the new car market now, and they were way less than that last year and the year before. The good news is that for the first time, buyers of used EVs, as long as they meet certain income thresholds, can get a tax credit of up to $4,000. But it, that's only if you buy a car from a dealership, and that's only if it's a, a one-owner vehicle, if it, has, if it hasn't already been resold. So you, the car can only get that tax credit once. Now, you mentioned tax credits. Of course, tax credits are going to be a factor in the decision for a lot of people. And the government is planning to make an announcement on which actual vehicle models qualify for specific tax credits this year. Can you explain more about that? What exactly is happening and how can people shopping for cars currently navigate through all of that? This was kind of a weird year for the EV tax credit because a lot of things changed and kept changing. Starting on April 18th, the $7,500 tax credit is going to be divided into two parts. So for the first half, at least 50% of a vehicle's battery components have to be produced or assembled in North America. For the second half, at least 40% of the critical minerals used in the battery must be extracted or processed in the U.S., or they have to come from a country that's uh, a U.S. free trade agreement partner, which is a list which is changing every day. Oh, my God. 
they have to be made from materials that have been recycled in North America. And okay, so so surely there is a list of exactly <laughs> yes. which models qualify, right? There is, and it's changing. But even when you look <laughs> at that, sometimes cars are made in different factories. So I know at least one automaker, General Motors, says that they're going to have a website that you can go to and you can plug in the vehicle identification number of the individual car you're looking at and see if it qualifies. So, uh, uh, you know, this is really easy for the consumer to figure this out. <laughs> Keith Berry is an autos reporter for Consumer Reports. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. David's Bridal, the company that has dressed American brides for more than 70 years, has filed for bankruptcy. The chain is assuring shoppers that stores are open, that all orders should stay on schedule, but the company is also planning to lay off thousands of workers. NPR's Alina Seljuk reports. In recent years, David's Bridal has claimed to be selling every third wedding dress in America, which almost makes its bankruptcy filing seem like a paradox, says Sucharita Kadali, retail analyst at Forrester. What's ironic is that last year and this year should be banner years for weddings. The pandemic lockdowns eventually unleashed a wedding boom. Behind the veil, David's Bridal has been hundreds of millions of dollars in debt. They've been struggling for years and had been in different forms of bankruptcy. David's Bridal grew from a single boutique in Florida in 1950, actually run by a guy named David, to a nationwide chain of some 300 stores. Find unforgettable dresses for every occasion starting under $100. The stores are mazes of racks of gowns and fancy outfits in a lot of different sizes. From weddings to award ceremonies to proms to parties to quinceaneras, to graduations, to girls' nights. First came something borrowed. In 2012, a private equity firm bought David's Bridal. The deal saddled it with debt. Then something new, a changing industry. Couples began marrying later, weddings got smaller, more casual, people bought more gowns online and secondhand. In 2018, David's Bridal went through bankruptcy. But it was rapid, a matter of weeks, just to restructure debt. Except then the pandemic hit. The chain spent a lot on rents for stores nobody visited, on dealing with factory shutdowns abroad. And now the cost of making payments on its loans has escalated, says Kadali. When you're in debt and interest rates go up, like that's that's probably the biggest issue. What David's Bridal wants is for someone to buy it, the whole company. Meanwhile, it's filed government notices that it plans to lay off 9,200 workers. That's a vast majority. The layoffs are planned over the course of four months, so David's Bridal says it intends to keep delivering bridal orders without disruption or delay. And stores, for now, remain open till debt do us part. Alina Selyuk, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up this evening on Marketplace, big box stores such as Best Buy and Walmart have announced store-level layoffs. We'll take a look at what this means for retail workers. And coming up next, a report from the Boston Marathon finish line. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business with the Comcast Business Complete Connectivity Solution. It's cybersecurity, internet, and mobile, all from Comcast Business, powering possibilities. An upswing on Wall Street today. The Dow rose three-tenths of a percent. S&P closed just over three-tenths of a percent at higher, and the Nasdaq rose just under that. It gained 0.28 percent. 
Boston car-sharing company Zipcar says it plans to expand its electric fleet this year. The company will also place a quarter of its electric fleet in disadvantaged communities. Zipcar says the effort is part of the White House EV Acceleration Challenge. The Biden administration initiative calls on the public and private sectors to make half of all new car sales electric by the year 2030. It's 620. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, offering modern Latin American fare in a new food truck available for catering and events. Online booking at lacuchara.com. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to wbur.org. Rain clouds should move out tonight. Clear skies by tomorrow. Overnight lows around 51. Tomorrow, sunny skies with highs about 57. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Cambridge Naturals with over 300 bulk items, including culinary spices, medicinal herbs, and household staples. CambridgeNaturals.com. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. The 127th Boston Marathon today featured a back-to-back championship and a record-breaking finish. The winner of the men's division for a second year in a row was Evans Chibet of Kenya. His fellow countryman, Elliot Kipchoge, had been favored to win. He holds the world record for marathons, and this was his first run in Boston. He ended up coming in sixth. WBR Marathon correspondent Alex Ashlock was on the press truck watching the lead women in the race. He joins us from Copley Square, where he's been hearing from some of the athletes. Alex, as always, it's never dull, is it? Lisa, the marathon is very unpredictable, and it certainly carried through that today. Well, let's talk about the women first, since you had a front row seat for the whole thing. This was a really exciting and very much unpredictable race. The winner, Helen Obiri of Kenya, was running her first Boston and only her second marathon ever, and she won. That's that's unbelievable. It really is unbelievable. It's a big win for her. The crowd was loving it as she sprinted down Boylston Street. As she said, as you said, she's not an experienced marathoner. She's been an Olympic medalist, though, on the track. But today she stayed in the lead pack as it shrunk down to four or five women. And when the time came, she used the speed she's displayed on the track in the past. Lisa, she won the race by 12 seconds coming down Boylston Street. And Lisa, with six miles to go, it looked like American Emma Bates could win this race or at least finish in the top three. Here's what she said about her race. I just felt so good the whole time, and I got to mile 20 and was still in the lead, and I just looked at my coach who was at mile 20, and I was just like, I don't, I guess I'm in the front, and so he's like, just go for it, just go for it. So I think um, just kind of instincts took in. Good thing they did. That was pretty wild. Yeah. Yeah, they kept her to, or pushed her to fifth place, so it was a really good finish for her. In fact, she ran two hours, 22 minutes, and 10 seconds, which was one minute faster than she's ever run a marathon. Well, let's get back to the men. Uh, Evans Chibet won for a second year in a row. His fellow Kenyan, the world record holder, Elliot Kipchoge, was heavily favored, but Kipchoge fell behind in Newton and never caught up. That was an interesting turn of events. It sure was. Chibet is the first man to repeat as Boston champion since 2008. That's a really big deal, and he called this his biggest win ever in his career. Kipchoge did release a statement this afternoon that reads in part, I live for the moments where I get to challenge the limits. It's never guaranteed. Today was a tough day for me. 
and Lisa apparently he went to the medical tent after finishing. The bottom line is he can't always be superhuman, even though he has been in just about every marathon he's ever run. I wonder about the race conditions today. Uh, the temperature for many runners, I think, was ideal, but there was a sporadic rain. How do you think that affected the athletes? You know, Emma Bates said it was actually colder than she expected it to be, and it affected her during the race or bothered her a bit. The cold and rain did contribute to strategy, I think. Evans Jabet and his training partner, Benson Kiproto, who won the Boston Marathon back in 2021, they ha- they did hang back a bit, let other runners like Kipchoge block the elements, the wind and the rain uh, that was coming in on those uh, marathoners. And by the way, one of the only two marathons Kipchoge didn't win before today was a cold and wet one in London back in 2020. How about in the men's wheelchair race? Marcel Hoog of Switzerland, known as the Silver Bullet, shattered the record for the course, a record that he himself set several years ago. He's just very hard to beat on this course, very hard to beat in these big major marathons. He loves this marathon, the Boston Marathon, and he was healthy today after missing missing last uh, last year's race with an injury. His course record time, one hour, 17 minutes, and six seconds, was more than 10 minutes faster than second place. And he really is the dominant men's wheelchair marathoner in the world. Yeah, it's incredible in these conditions uh, with a headwind, crosswind, uh, with rain, to do a a time like this. For me, it's it's still incredible. And on the women's side, women's wheelchair division, Susanna Scaroni from Washington State won her first Boston title. She was way ahead of the rest of the pack, but then she had to actually stop along the side of the course at one point. What happened? Yeah, she went out fast, which she always does. And uh, she did that from the start of the race, took commanding lead. She loves the hills, by the way. Then she had some trouble. I think this happened at about six miles she noticed her right, her right wheel on her wheelchair was coming loose, so what did she do? She stopped and fixed it. So I carry an Allen key for situations like that, um, pulled over, tightened it as quickly as I could, and then just got back to holding a, as fast a pace as I could, and I didn't know how much of a gap there would be or was, and so I just tried to um, keep it going. Obviously, this wasn't ideal. She said she was disappointed when she felt her wheel coming loose. But she thought it's better to stop and fix this thing because the time she would lose if she did not stop and repair it would be more than stopping and repairing it. So that's what she did. To good effect because she won. WBUR Marathon correspondent Alex Ashluck, thank you so much for all your reporting today, including starting early this morning in Hopkinton at the starting line. Alex, thank you again. You're welcome, Lisa. Time now for My Unsung Hero, our series from the team at Hidden Brain. My Unsung Hero tells the stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression on someone else. And today's story comes from Susan Greenstein Prescott. Her unsung hero is her 12th grade English teacher, Fred DeMeo. One day, he assigned everyone a poem to recite in front of the class. And I was terrified. I had a mild stutter. And I thought, there is no way I'm getting up there in front of my peers and speaking. So I went home and I told my mother how I felt and she wrote me a note asking me to be excused from doing the assignment in front of the whole class. So the day of the public speaking assignment, I stayed after school. So I did, instead of giving it in front of my peers, 
I gave it to him one-on-one after the school day. And we sat down and I recited my poem. And I don't remember if I stuttered, but he looked at me when I was finished and he said, what was wrong with that? And I just sat there and he said, I liked listening to your voice. And I had never heard that before. I think in his mind, it was so minor. And he wanted me to understand I have nothing to be afraid of. And I didn't realize how empowering that would be for me. And I never thanked him. You know, I graduated and I just, and I just moved forward like an 18-year-old person will, will do. When I graduated from college, the second job I had was being a corporate trainer. So I stand up in front of people and I speak and I do it all the time. And if I do stutter once in a while, big whoop. And I'd like Mr. DeMeo to know that he truly is an unsung hero because he played a big role in my very successful career in my life. And that was life-changing. I don't know where I would have gone if I felt like I had to keep my voice quiet because I was afraid of embarrassing myself. I'd like to give him my thanks for that kindness. Susan Greenstein Prescott. Since recording this story, she has found a way to reach Fred DeMeo, and she plans to write him a letter saying thank you. You can find more stories like this on the My Unsung Hero podcast. And to share the story of your unsung hero, record a voice memo on your phone and email it to us at myunsunghero at hiddenbrain.org. Support for My Unsung Hero comes from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com slash NPR. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Waterstone, a new luxury independent and assisted living community with social and wellness programs and fine dining on Watertown Street in Lexington. WaterstoneLexington.com.